podcast starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to a Now the Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan in Greater Manchester and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Stella Gaynor in Manchester. Welcome back Stella, how are you doing? I'm alright, I'm alright. Not too mad in lockdown, but a bit mad, but I'm alright. <laughs> <laughs> just um, semi-psychosis yeah I mean, it's creeping in but I think I'm I'm holding firm yes um, I've started to notice uh, weird paranoias and things that you think you've forgotten to do but you haven't stuff like that <laughs> have started happening to me um, but uh, that might just be normal life to be honest um, yeah I think I'm still definitely walking around going that's not two metres away that's not two metres and I just can't stop that going around in my head now it's pretty much constant just measuring people all the time that's probably very sensible I think those are probably the kind of habits which we need to develop yeah um I did go out for two walks this week with friends responsibly socially distanced yeah uh we went walking up near Hartshead Pike both times. Oh, it's lovely up there. Uh, yeah, Hartshead Pike, for the benefit of the listeners, is, is an old watch post tower at the top of a hill um, outside Saddleworth um, and outside Oldham. And uh, yeah, I'm, I went for two walks and we went there both times, which maybe says something about the number of... Um, of sites that are worth seeing in Oldham. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that's not true. It was... The thing is, we... There are various routes to get there, and we could, on the first time, we could get in sight of it, but not go near it. On the second time, we could actually go up to it. The view when you get to the top's gorgeous, isn't it? You can see for miles. Yeah, there's a wonderful view of Manchester, yeah. and it's just, um, it's kind of stunning. So yeah, so being able to actually go out the house and talk to someone at length has been um, the event of the last week for me. <laughs> and having done that twice, I feel positively spoiled. <laughs> I've not done that well there's the man in the corner shop that's who I speak to that isn't my husband or my daughter and, right. uh, that, that's it so I, I've got to know him a little bit better though I don't know his name maybe oh. I'll find that out for next time <laughs> uh, well I, 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 I speak to the people in the street when we do the clap for carers every oh, Thursday right, yeah. so I've started to get to know the names of some people in my street that I didn't know before oh um, that's nice but I don't go into shops because I'm frightened of them. So, I, Before we, this or just um, because of this? Just because of this. Um, <laughs> we're lucky enough that we have family members who will drop off food for yeah. us. So I don't need to take any risks like that, which is good. That is good. So um, Kirsty and I normally discuss a little bit of horror news and what we've been doing. Um, and my bit of news this week uh, is that I'm, I was delighted to hear that... Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is coming to all four in the UK, which means it's going to be available to stream for free. I mean, if you pay money every month to Amazon Prime like I do, then you'll be simultaneously <laughs> uh, pleased and cheesed off that, that suddenly you're, you're, you're spending money for, for next to nothing. But it's wonderful that Buffy is going to be um, available for free to basically everybody in the UK once again because... Um, it's a great show. I've it is. I'm going to um, use this opportunity to introduce it to my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter. I think she's going to absolutely love it. Oh, that's yes. fantastic. She's yeah. the perfect age. She really is. She's going to be all over it. Oh, that, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, 
yeah, and um, that's about it in terms of my horror news for the week. Um, I, it's funny, I, I don't find myself with a huge amount of time to watch horror films at the moment, unless we're specifically talking about them on the podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so obviously I've been uh, thinking about and researching bits to do with episodes that we've got coming up, and in, indeed this week's episode, which is uh, myself and Howard um, resuming our quest from long ago to, to do a podcast about every film that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee starred in together. And last week... Uh, myself and Kirsty um, had a really good chat about a couple of those movies that I introduced her to, um, and now we are we're resuming the actual quest. We started it years ago, um, and we have already recorded four complete episodes, which I've just added to this podcast feed yeah. in the last week, so I, all of our listeners can uh, easily access our old episodes. Um, if they'd like to. And then today we're taking up the quest with uh, an episode about a movie called Horror Express from 1972. So in a few moments, Stella and I, and in the present day, are going to step back and we'll let Howard and past version of me from last September when we recorded (laughs) this and our our special guest, Tim Shaw, take over. But can I tell you my favourite thing about Christopher Lee? Yes, please, Stella. Please tell me your favourite thing about Christopher Lee. So my favourite thing about Christopher Lee is that he made a uh, symphonic metal concept album in 2010 called By the Sword and the Cross, which is a fabulous name. And he also worked with loads of other metal bands as well, um, most famous ones being Rhapsody of Fire and Man of War. Um, so, yeah, while he was still with us, not only was he being awesome in movies, but he was being awesome in music. And I didn't know this until after he'd sadly passed. And uh, I went and checked it out, and it's absolutely bonkers, especially his own concept album. Anything that's a concept album is bonkers. But I was just like, that's great. Really, really good. (laughs) Yes, it's absolutely awesome. I didn't know this for a long time. In fact, it was Kirsty's husband who let me in on the secret, and I did know a little bit before Christopher Lee died. So, um, uh, you know, I think I was aware when his last album came out. Right. I think there's a couple, although I don't... um, I, I, I don't know which ones are kind of generated from him and which ones are projects that other people did and they just kind of brought him in on. Um, I've just found out today, because I've actually watched a programme about Christopher Lee today that was on TV, by coincidence. You know, there's a show on BBC Two called Talking Pictures. Oh, yeah. Where they just kind of put together archive footage of movie stars. Yeah. And today it was Christopher Lee. And yeah. one of the things on it was him singing... Uh, I was born under a wandering star <laughs> right. um, on, on TV in 1999. So um, Excellent. he's not only uh, a metal star, uh, he's uh, he can also, you know, he, he was a well-known for being an opera singer and things, but he's country and Western as well. So, Is there uh, anything he can't do? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He's a man of talent. and. He um, is. And uh, the film that we're going to talk about today is is eclectic and kind of shows how talented and worldly he was because it's not a British horror film, it's a Spanish film mm. that was um, just happened to have two British horror stars in it um, and was made in the era of um, kind of paella westerns and spaghetti westerns and things. Um, yeah. And it's, um, well... I, I suppose I probably shouldn't say anything more about it. I shall <laughs> hand over to my past self. Um, but hopefully this is going to be a very, very in-depth 
discussion of the movie. Um, if you, for people who have seen the movie or are familiar with it, it goes into great detail. Hopefully, you'll appreciate that. If you haven't seen it, uh, we kind of talk generally in a non-spoilery way about the film for about twenty minutes, but then we start doing a, a scene by scene breakdown of the entire movie. So once that starts, the spoilers are going to start coming. But you have been warned. Um, but anyone who's not seen it and would like to, it's available on YouTube legally um, and in lots of places. But you know you can see it for free. So um, you know maybe go watch it, but have a listen, see what you reckon to what's coming. All right, thanks very much, Stella. I'll see you at the end. All um, right, bye bye. All right, bye bye. Here's your cabin, sir. Just put it in there. Thank you. What's this? I didn't know I was sharing this cabin. Sorry, sir. This gentleman has also booked this cabin. You'll need to make room for him and also this guy. Oh. But that crate is enormous. Surely it belongs in the goods van. No. I need it in my sight at all times. Oh? What's in it? A fossil found in Manchuria. I'm taking it home with me to England. Fascinating. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm sorry to be impertinent, but haven't we met before? I don't believe so. Um, haven't we met on a train before? This fossil's value to science is potentially incalculable. Are you changing the subject? You force me to. Can I see it then, the fossil? No. I'd like to. No. Please. No. I can bribe you. What? You know, give you money and you let me see it. I know what a bribe is. It's a choice, really. Either you take the bribe, or I'll just wait until you're asleep and then look myself. If I was you, I'd take the money. How utterly shameless. What is your name, sir? Although, in fact, thinking about it, I probably wouldn't look myself. I'd bribe someone else to do it for me, just in case of any danger of death. I'm Dr. Wells, by the way, and I'm not so bad, really, just insatiably curious. Sir Alexander Saxton, the noted anthropologist. I have to say, however, Dr. Wells that I feel your larkish attitude brings into disrepute the generations of noble British scientists who have worked so hard to dig up other countries and find things to put in our museums. I think you're being unfair. I'm not really shameless, you know. As a matter of fact, I think I will feel quite ashamed after I bribe someone to open the grate, especially if the monster inside then escapes and starts killing lots of people on the train. Why do you think the fossil might be a monster? Well, that crate is rather monster-sized, wouldn't you say? I mean, you could fit David Prowse in it. I wouldn't like to comment. Sorry to bother you again, gentlemen. Just need to check your tickets. Of course. Here you are. Thank you, sir. If I may say, you have a pleasant, if non-specific, accent, sir, but it seems not always to match your lip movements. Oh, do not trouble yourself with that, sir. You'll find that most people you meet on this train have that particular tick. It's traditional in this company. It must be very traditional. Most of your colleagues that I've met even seem to have the same voice. I can hardly be blamed for that. I see you're getting off with horror, Dr. Wells. And your ticket, Sir Alexander. Here you are. I'm also travelling to horror. Thank you. Two tickets to horror. Excellent.
Hello everybody, this is Dan, uh, Howard is with me. Hello. And our wonderful friend Tim Shaw is with us, so say hello Tim. Hello. Hello. And the important thing to note is, we're British, you know. <laughs> this is um, the first podcast that Howard and I have done in a while talking about uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee horror film. Yes it is, we've been busy, we've been up to Edinburgh. Yes. Beautiful city of Edinburgh for the festival, which is marvellous, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it uh, too very much, um, and it's actually a couple of years since we recorded. I mean, it's we a couple of my goodness, doesn't time fly? We have done other podcasts uh, subsequently, but it's a couple of years since we last talked about Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee film, and today we're going to talk about a very interesting one, uh, which uh, hopefully the, the listener will uh, will probably already know that we're going to talk about the 1972 film Horror Express, um, which. Um, I think is a film that we, each of us have an interesting relationship to, and I think there's a lot to say about it. It's a really interesting film. I think it's a really entertaining film. It's a kind of film which is a bit overlooked by a lot of people, um, and I think uh, there are we, we each have a different reason for wanting to talk about it in detail. Um, but before we get into that, I think, uh, Howard, we should just uh, give our special guest, Tim Shaw, a chance to, to introduce himself. Yes. Uh, Tim, welcome to the, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure. You, you are the the first person I ever met who is a fan of Horror Express. I think you were a fan of Horror Express before I had ever seen it. That's right. But some of our listeners might not know you, so um, uh, could you introduce yourself? and Tell them a little about yourself, please. Yep, well, I'm Tim Shaw. No, not him from Doctor Who. Um, you must get <laughs> that a lot. Right Yes, I get that a lot. Um, ever since that episode came out, I get it all the time now. <laughs> I'm, you know, generally interested in in a lot of um, you know films and television. Basically, I love films and television, um, but I, I haven't actually done a lot of podcasting uh, regarding that medium. My podcasting background comes from um, music podcasting. I used to have a podcast where I played um, independent and unsigned artists and bands. Um, but I have been interested in sort of going into, um, you know, television and sort of film commentary and discussion. I very recently uh, started a pilot for a podcast <laughs> called Ghost in the Machines. And the idea behind that podcast is to each week discuss films or television shows um, that focus on reality TV horror, if you know what I mean. So things like um, Ghost Watch and Blair Witch, and you know things like that. It's still very much at pilot stage because we haven't recorded uh, another one for a while. Um, but at some point, we're ho hoping to get back to it, and then uh, that should become a regular po podcast. And then, you know, that'll be me going into uh, that that arena. That's a fascinating area. Um... So has any have any episodes of that show been released yet, or are they just in the recording stage? Not released. We've we've re we've recorded two episodes. We've recorded one for Ghost Watch, and we've recorded one for the uh, Inside Number Nine Halloween special from last year. Oh, fantastic! Well, um, keep in touch with um, us, and you know we'll give your podcast a link. Certainly will do. Splendid. Uh, yeah, and as the some of the listeners may know. Um, yeah, I'm Dan. I'm I'm a, a fan of of lots of things, um, and particularly um, kind of old horror movies. Um, 
and it, it was my idea a couple of years ago. It actually started when um, Christopher Lee died in 2015. Howard and I decided to get together and, and just talk about this amazing body of work that, um, that Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, two great actors, did together over the course of several decades and left us with this amazing canon of 20-something mostly horror films. Um, that I think it, it, they're just really fascinating and worth celebrating and um, I'm really glad to be able to get back to talking about them today. And we're going to get back to talking about them by discussing Horror Express, which is, I think, uh, one, maybe one of the less well-known films, um, but one of the most interesting. Um, I know, Tim, that you've been a fan of this movie for almost your whole life. Pretty much. I first discovered this film when I was five years old. Um, so it, it must have been around about, I, I think, 1987 um, that I first saw it. And I've been completely obsessed with the film ever since. Right. That's wonderful. I mean, totally obsessed. Totally obsessed. Give us an example of how totally obsessed you are. Well, um, I accidentally came across it because uh, my mother recorded it off television. This was the time where it was being showed a lot in the late 80s. Um, and she was watching it with, with my brother and I just happened to be in the room at the time. Um, and through that, my interest, you know, my interest kept going in it um, and I watched it over and over again as, as a child. And all the way up to now and to adulthood, you know, I'm still obsessing about this film. Right, wow. Um, can you give us an estimate of, of how many times you've seen it? It's got to be in the hundreds, I'd say. Wow. Blimey. That's incredible. Yep. How about you, Howard? When did you discover this film? Well, I think it must have been in the early 1980s, I think, when I first started watching these things. I can't remember if it was one of those horror double bills they had on BBC Two, but it was round about then. Because back in those days, BBC One and BBC Two and ITV would show horror films most Friday nights, most Saturday nights. Uh, and Horror Express seemed to be one of the ones that was on fairly frequently, uh, like The Ghoul and Legends of the Werewolf. Some were shown very often. And it seemed to be one of those films a bit like Theatre of Blood. It's developed a cult reputation from the people who watched it then. Right. They've grown up and sort of have this great affection for it. It's one of those films, most people probably don't know it or have never seen it. But the people who have seen it, it's... it's they really like it, and it's it's um, you know it's a really interesting film. It's, it's I think it's got a bit of a cult reputation that sort of the, the, the people who like it really like it. Yes, I think it's the definition of a cult film in that the people who know about it really love it, and but outside that cult, people are not aware of it really. So it used to be on UK Gold. I think that's where I first noticed it. I noticed it in the listings of UK Gold, but I never watched it until I went to university and found it in the university library and took the video home and watched it then. I watched it then, that was about 15 years ago, and I, I've now re-watched it for this podcast. It's not a film I've seen a, a, many times at all, um, but I'm really glad that I re-watched it and I'm really excited to talk about it. So, I want to just kind of sum up the plot, um, because um, I'm assuming that there will be listeners to this podcast who probably haven't seen the film. And I think if you haven't seen the film but you like horror films, especially older ones, I would really recommend yeah, this definitely. film. I think that's the first thing to say. And I don't want us to immediately spoil the movie for anyone who's not seen it. So I think at the start of this discussion, if we discuss kind of the the broad story of the film and the broad features of the film that we think are interesting, um, and then we'll go in more detail through the story and the characters. And we will probably spoil the plot as we go along because I think it's a really interestingly plotted film. And I think we probably can't discuss 
um, all the things that are great about it without spoiling certain things. So for people listening to this who've never seen the film, we'll avoid spoilers for about the first half, but from that point, the more you listen to the podcast, the more things will be spoiled. So if you don't want to have the film totally ruined, uh, go away and watch it. Um, <laughs> but we will we'll kind of be gentle and try and lure you in. So in terms of what is the film about if you've never seen Horror Express... Well, I've been onto the IMDb, and it has a very, very vague plot summary, which is the following. In 1906 in China, a British anthropologist discovers a frozen prehistoric creature and must transport it to Europe by train. That they... doesn't give much away. There are not many spoilers in that, I don't think. No, uh, I think what we can say is the British anthropologist is um, Sir Alexander Saxton, played by Christopher Lee, and he catches the train... Um, by the way, the, the I think the original Spanish title for this movie is, I think it's Panico on El <laughs> Trans. Well, the English Panic on the Trans Siberian Express. Yes, Trans Siberiano. Panic. And there is a lot of panic. Yeah. What's, but yeah. That is the title. Yeah. yeah. That is the proper title of the film. Uh, yeah. So he he has to uh, transport this on on the Trans Siberian Express, um, and on the express. He, he encounters another scientist, Dr. Wells, played by Peter Cushing, and a number of interesting characters, but it soon becomes clear that the creature, the prehistoric creature in the crate that he's loaded aboard, is somehow still alive and is able to emerge and cause havoc. I don't want to... Um, panic. It causes panic. Yeah. I, I don't want to say too much about how and why it does that. Let's just say it does things. <laughs> it does things, yeah, exactly. Um... If I was to ask you, gentlemen, uh, what do you think is extraordinary about this film without spoiling any of the story, um, is there something you could point to? Um, Tim, what what would you think? The fact that it was it was put together so quickly. Um, I don't think it had a massive budget, and I don't know if this if this is kind of like a myth, but I believe it was made because they had to use an, uh, an existing set. And it was just one set, and they had to keep redressing it to make it look like a whole train. Yeah, that, yeah, that is that's true. Because um, the basically, um, it is a Spanish uh, UK co-production, and the Spanish company had just made a western. I think it's known as a spaghetti western, but I think technically it's Spanish, not Italian, so that makes it a paella western. Paella western, yes. But, um, called Pancho Villa, and it had two model trains and a load of track made for it. Um, and the, the company thought they'd invested so much in it that they should make another movie hmm. uh, involving those things. And it, and the, they, the same director and the same writer and the same... Most of the same crew came back within a year to, to to produce this movie, and they kind of wrote the script to that brief of it's got to be based around a train. And as you, and you're quite right, Tim. Um, uh, they basically only built one interior train carriage set. So um, for this film, which is set across a whole train um, of several different carriages, uh, a goods van. Um, there's a, like a luxury apartment carriage, which is where yeah, the count the is. There's the restaurant car. Yeah, um, and, and the various cabins. So they yeah, they had to just shoot um, everything in one particular carriage, then reinvent the whole set to be a new carriage. And yeah, I think you're completely right, Tim. I don't think there's much money involved at all. I suppose, yeah, that's what I would say straight out of 
uh, the gate is that it's a, it's an extraordinary piece of of low budget ingenuity in terms of filmmaking, and it looks beautiful. Yeah. I think it looks like a million dollars. That's the point I was making. The fact that with what they had, they have made um, this this what I think is an incredible film. Uh, and as you pointed out earlier, it's a cult film that people who know about it love it. People who don't know about it don't know about it, and it, and there are not enough people who know about it. Yeah, I, I would agree. I want to say I love films set on trains. I'm yes. going to say that at the beginning. I love Lady Vanishes, Murder on the Orient Express, Breakheart Past with Charles Bronson, Terror by Night, Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone. Yes, I think there's something about trains. They're so... Because you've got a, a group, a disparate group of people in a confined area, but you're going really quickly. So it's kind of exciting. You've still got all these people all forced together. Um, and... For a romance or for a spy film or for a horror film, it works really well. You've got all those people. I'm going in the compartment. I wish trains... I mean, I don't drive. I travel on trains a lot. And trains now are just like buses. They're just rows of seats. If you still had those compartments now, like it did then, it'd be much more exciting. Mm. And you could just walk along. I just think they're a great location, a great place to set any kind of film. And particularly horror film, where you've got all these people all confined. And they can't, you know, they can't get away from this creature. So Well, what, what makes that worse in a, in a horror film is not just the... The, the train setting but where it is it's in the middle of Siberia where, where the hell are you going to go yes yeah, it yeah. It's increases the claustrophobia I mean um, yeah. to agree with you Howard I think that a train is like the most cinematic place you can set a story yes because it's always moving because it always makes sound you know if you set a film on a train and you don't happen to have like the makers of Horror Express did access to a set <laughs> and a model you're in real trouble because it's you can't. It's very hard to film on a real one. Yeah. What are you going to do? And when you fake it, you've got to make it move slightly all the time. You've got to make sure things can be seen out the windows. It's and that's why I think Alfred Hitchcock was um, attracted to setting the Lady Vanishes. Well, to, to doing the story of the Lady Vanishes in 1938. I think it was. I watched that film this week um, because that's a thriller that's mostly set on a train, and, and nobody had done that. And the amount of trick effects and fakery they had to use to to just make it look like a real train and to make it feel like a real yeah. train is, is huge um i mean i think that um to to compare it to a, a film that's nearer in contemporary time to horror express a while ago i watched walter hill's 1977 film the driver which is a thriller about a getaway driver played by ryan o'neill and it has some of the most amazing car chase scenes the way that the car chases are filmed and sound designed and everything it's using cinema to its max and it's wonderfully done. But there's also a suspense sequence in the film set on a train. And it's as if they put all the effort into the car that they totally forgot that they had to make the train seem real too. And, like, they don't even make the train look like it's wobbling. The train's huh. supposed to be moving huh. and everything is completely still. And, like, Bruce Dern walks through um, a carriage looking for someone and he doesn't even do that act, the train walking <laughs> acting where you're swaying a bit and you might lose your balance. It's they're just totally not thinking about it, and it really stands out. But um, in Horror Express, once the train starts moving, they never lose that. It's a it, it's a real train all the way, or it feels like a real train. It's always well, perhaps you have some people outside moving it to make it bubble. Well, I think, I like it, think if if your set is like literally on a, uh, wheels or whatever, you, you hopefully have that option. It, whatever they did, they did it really well. I think it doesn't lose the illusion of being a no, real no, train no. at any point, even though a lot of the exteriors are model trains. Um, that, that good model, though, I think. They tend it's to good, look fantastic, I think. So It convinced me. It's good enough for me. 
I mean, that's another thing. They used the moving train shots um, to, to to transition between each each scene when they're on the train. That's true. Yeah, um, it, that, that's a technique that works really well, and it it both keeps the film moving, but also keeps the claustrophobic mood intact. And um, and and I should say this as well. Appropriately for a film about a, an express train, it moves really fast. Yes, it is. It's you know, very well paced. I totally agree. The pacing of the film is almost perfect. It's only it only runs for about eighty four minutes, but it it feels like a full movie when you watch it because it's just so much going on so quickly. They pack so much story in, and as as the, the plot progresses, it just gets madder and madder and madder and more exciting and more interesting. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Have either of you seen the film Pancho Villa that the train set came from? No. No. I have seen half of it. I was watching it this morning. It's a, a kind of um, boisterously entertaining but kind of incoherent western starring Telly Savalas. Well, it's got American stars and it's got Anne Francis. Yes, and... and uh, Connors, is it, or somebody like that? Or, or, and Clint Walker. And Clint Walker, yeah, it's got those sort of B-movie type... And it also has a, a, a Spanish actor in it who's dubbed by a really recognisable American voice that I couldn't play. It's <laughs> like, as you often get, including in this film, you think, I know that voice, who is that? But um, I d- it was useful that I watched the beginning of it because the train sequence in Pancho Villa is the first scene of the movie. I don't know if the train comes back later at the end of the film, but... Um, it's almost as if they built this whole set for like the first five minutes of another movie and then went, actually, this was really expensive. Let's get a whole movie out of it. Because you can see in that scene that it's the same set from Horror Express. And they obviously just absolutely made the most of it. Um, it is good fun, Pancho Villa, actually. This takes me on to the next incredible thing. Go on. Um, the, you mentioned that, that, that the crew, everybody involved in this film... Um, we're involved in this previous film that was a western. The guy who did the score was known for doing these these westerns as well, I believe. Is that right? He he did do Pancho Villa. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm so what I'm saying is they all got together and did a film that was com- complete genre shift and pulled it off. Yes. No. Absolutely. And and just to expand on that, I think that an extraordinary thing about it is that given this very specific brief, we've built this train set for a western please can you do another film using it they didn't go right we'll do another western they went what can we do and they came up with this extraordinary plot which um i i think it kind of be described as like i think jonathan rigby the critic describes it as something like the thing meets murder on the orange <laughs> express meets quatermass on the pit um but they did that and yet it, it's really wonderfully done as well you know, it's a it's a really good story. And yet there are some people out there who will say it's a hammer. It's not going to do nothing to do with the hammer at all. But because you've got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in it, it could have been a film made by a hammer, but with you know with that crew as well. You know what I mean? Oh, no, true. And and in fact, the composer who you, you were talking mm. about, John Kakavas, um, he did go on to do hammer films immediately following this. Because obviously that connection had been made in people's minds. He's he does the music for the satanic uh, the satanic rites of Dracula, yeah. which is the last Cushing Lee Dracula film, which was made just a year after this. So, and he does music for Columbo as well. Yeah, and he went so on doing a, a lot of Columbo yeah, music. And good, good music in Columbo as well. Um, well, didn't he do like the the, the later series of Columbo? Yeah, oh yeah, like he the, didn't do he didn't do the seventies ones. He did yeah. when it, again, which are not very good. The eighties ones. 
The 70s ones are brilliant, the 80s ones are not. But the music's good. The, the episodes I've seen where he does the music, it's really good. It's really sort of memorable. And, well, as someone who uh, used to have an album of John Gakkavassi's <laughs> music, I kid you not, I, when I was a young teenager, I found a vinyl record on sale in my local library, just having a clear out. So for 50p, I got an album of John Kakavas's cover versions <laughs> of James Bond theme songs. Um, wow. And I, 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 I listened to that to death. Um, so I feel quite f- intimately familiar with him, really. So, so James Bond suddenly sounded like Horror Express. Huh. Uh, well, yeah, essentially, when, uh, when I did watch... The first film I saw with Kakavas was uh, Satanic Rites. And when I watched that, I just thought, this sounds like Bond. And it is kind of a spy thriller, though, so that was... Um, essentially, that was appropriate. Um, Kakavas also did... Um, the music to two of the airport films. You know the Hollywood disaster films, the airport series. He did Airport 75 and Airport 77. Airport 77 stars Christopher Lee. So um, that's the third of Christopher Lee's extraordinary collaboration with John (laughs) Gakavas. There's one important thing about this film that we haven't mentioned. Can anybody guess what it is? Anything else? Is it Telly Savalas? Oh, we'll mention him. We'll mention Telly Savalas, yeah. Um, yeah, well, actually, you know what? We should say that he is the third major star of this yeah. film. And it's his appearance is a great example of an actor proving that they can somehow eat a film whole, yeah. despite being in only, like, two or three scenes. I also believe he was he was in the, uh, given top billing in the promotional material. Well, yeah, that's... I mean, he gets... Um, I think in the credits it says and Telly Savalas, but I yeah. think that that translated to like third billing on the poster. I mean, yeah, yeah, third billing on the poster. You know, it makes it look like he's like a third principal character. Yeah, and he doesn't even look like he's fully dressed. <laughs> um, you know, but I think that's part of the point. His character is so large, but we'll come to that. Right. Uh, it's an extraordinary. This time when I watched it, I did think to myself, Are Telly Savalas and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing? ever in the same scene because often in these low budget movies they might be able to afford to get certain stars for a day or whatever but usually not at the same time but actually they they are all clearly in the same room and i just i just think that would have been an amazing room to be in (laughs) cushing lee sabalas and a load of spanish extras playing cossacks um extraordinary so um, now, the thing I wanted to mention that's important to note about this film, gentlemen, is that we own it. Literally. Oh, good. We <laughs> own it because nobody else does. Th- is this not true, Tim? Damn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Of course, it's public domain. It is. Um, do, you, do you know yeah. why that is, Tim? Well, I- I'm guessing it actually went out of copyright and they didn't bother uh, didn't bother renewing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I ask because I don't really understand the process. Um, I-, I know that a number of films from the 70s uh, became public domain. I believe Satanic Rites of Dracula is another one of them. Basically, things naturally fall out of co- copyright and the people who originally owned it uh, obviously can't be bothered with it. So they just leave it in public domain. Especially if something happens like the original studio goes bust or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's just financial reasons, isn't um, it? They just haven't got the money to, cop- to renew it. So. so therefore, the listener should know <laughs> that because it's public domain, um, Horror Express is, has been released multiple times and there are a number of competing versions of it. It's on um, Amazon Prime, for instance, but it's quite an, a, an old 
uh, faded print. But if you um, are a member of Arrow Video, which is a part of Amazon Prime, you can you can join it for five pounds a month. They've got a restored print of it from their restored Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago um, that will look much better. Also on YouTube, and I think it's legally on YouTube because obviously nobody owns the film, so it's not like anyone can sue them for but There's a company that's done a restored print of this um, that is the version that I watched on YouTube, and it looks absolutely great, except that um, for some reason uh, they decided that the credits needed totally redoing and they didn't necessarily do a very good job. I think they actually forgot to credit the producer and the director, which is pretty I've big. Yeah, I've seen that version. Yeah. I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> what happened to the original title sequence? I love the original title sequence. That whistling. That's a good place to start. So the original title sequence is, is obviously the first thing that you see in the movie. Um, Tim, tell us about that title sequence. It sets the mood of the film. You hear the train... You see the lights on the train, you know, constantly going across the screen. You have this sort of like red tint in the background, and you know you have the credits playing, but you have the famous signature theme in the whistle, and then the main sort of other part of the theme then comes in with the full orchestra, and that whole sort of sequence together just sets the tone of the movie, and it carries it right through to the end. It's it to me, it's a, it's a wonderful opening title sequence. I love it. I sometimes I I do sometimes sometimes I don't bother watching the film. I just sit there and watch the title sequence because I love it that much. I'll agree with you there, Tim. I've watched the credits a lot of times. Um, what I think is really great about it is that um, it's it's just a a lovely creative use of sound and vision. Because Tim, you described it there as you see the lights of the train coming past, but I don't think they are literally the lights of the train. I think they're like optically created lights passing which could be the train uh, and and certainly the they use the sound effects of the train which makes you think that but also i think they could they just suggest things traveling through space which obviously becomes part of the plot that was something i was just going to mention that it's supposed to be lights from the train but a lot of the times it looks like flashes of the sun which gives it that sort of you know that um heavenly body you know thing about it yeah, and you've you know, and it connects to the the kind of theme that comes through the film of, well, uh, let's say eyes are very important in this film. There's a this film might win some kind of award for close-ups of people's eyes, either bleeding or not bleeding, or or whitened or something, and uh, and there's there's a discussion of ideas being transferred through eyes and things like that. Um, well. I- Obviously, one of the overriding themes of this film, as we'll, we'll get into, is eyes. I just want to point out that when I watched this film as a kid, I didn't call it Horror Express. I called it Red Eyes. Oh, right, okay. So my brother would say to me, oh, you know, Tim, do you want to watch Red Eyes? He's like, oh, yeah, let, let, let's watch Red Eyes, you know. Right, okay. No, that's a good name for it, actually. That's the Tim title, sorry, not the, uh, not the official Spanish title or the English title. That's the Tim title. Um no, 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 thanks. We'll, we'll, um, we'll make sure that's clear to our listeners. There is one thing about the title sequence which I think is funny, uh, which I think partly explains why the people who did the restored version that's on YouTube felt that the credits had to be replaced, is that you've got these very bright white lights kind of flying at the camera, and then the credits appear in front of them, but the credits are, all, are also written in white. So for a lot of them, you actually can't quite read the words. I think it the the most 
kind of bizarrely inappropriate one is the director of photography's credit. You can't read. It sort of says photo, and then the rest of it is, is blurred out. I don't know what that sequence looks like on the Arrow video restoration. I would hope that they've kind of graded the image and they've made it a bit more clear on that, but, but I'm not sure. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Tim. I think it's an extraordinary and a very atmospheric kind of opening to the film. The following report to the Royal Geological Society by the undersigned Alexander Saxton is a true and faithful account of events that befell the Society's expedition in Manchuria. As the leader of the expedition, I must accept responsibility for its ending in disaster. But I will leave to the judgment of the honorable members the decision as to where the blame for the catastrophe lies. Uh, yeah, okay, so I think let's, um, let's start at the beginning of the film and think about kind of the story and, and move through it and just note what's extraordinary as, as it goes along. We cut to um, this, uh, this mountainous footage, which I think is stock footage. Uh, it's 1906 and Christopher Lee is with a mountaineering expedition in Manchuria and they discover a sinister, um, frozen, beast-like figure hidden in the ice. It's, it's a fairly wordless scene, I think. Again, it's got a great atmosphere to it, the visuals are lovely, and also I think Christopher Lee, when you first see him, he has a great entrance, it's just the way it's shot. Just the way he kind of steps into frame or out of the shadows, it reminds me a bit of the first time you see Harrison Ford's face in Indiana Jones, uh, Red of the Lost Ark. Yes, now the, the cut between that is great because you see the guys you know, in the background sort of walking through the, through the mountains um, while uh, Christopher Lee, Alexander Saxton, is doing his uh, introduction narration. And oh yeah, because there's a voiceover know, from him, isn't there? The voiceover. Setting yeah. up the storyline, yeah. Well, we can come into that in a minute, but what's, what's interesting about that is it's not just setting up the story, it's, it's almost suggesting the whole film is a report that is written about what's happened. Right, yeah, that, that's very interesting, yeah. yeah. But what I was going to say was that was the the cut between the them walking through the mountain and then this sort of bright light of um of Alexander Saxton's torch that he's holding and then then it reveals his face then 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 you get the music sort of comes in at that point as well lovely opening to that scene and a lovely little cut uh yes it's it's really well done and then where do we go from there then tim do we cut straight to the the train station and and saxton is uh, attempting to, to to load onto the train. Yeah, basically, um, you see the uh, the fossilized creature in the ice, and then it fades out to the, them walking down the mountains with the crate. So it's just that they've got it to a sudden c- cut of the uh, of the crate, and then you hear um, the train whistle as soon as that cuts that point, and we're at the station. Yes, and we have a kind of two intercut scenes then, I think. One of them is the crate is kind of waiting on the platform to be loaded, um, and a Chinese-looking uh, gentleman who's a bit shady is kind of hmm. taking an interest in it. And at the same time, I think that this scene intercuts with um, Saxton is in the ticket office arguing with a, a bureaucrat there that he should have a ticket 
for the train, I think. That's right. Yeah, basically, Alexander Saxon should have a seat reserved for him, and it isn't. So nothing's really changed in the way of how trains operate. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very um, uh, realistic and relevant portrayal of train travel. And I think that what happens next is that the guy who was taking an interest in the crate, is then found dead just next to the crate, isn't he? he yeah. He's seen to be kind of uh, picking the lock and, and, and getting inside it, and or, or somehow opening it. But then we cut away, and when we cut back, he's dead. And a crowd kind of gathers round. And a police inspector, the actor Julio Peña playing inspector... What's his name? Mirov. Mirov. Uh, steps forward to take charge of the situation. Inspector Mirov, what is in there, Excellency? Fossils. There wouldn't be something valuable in there, like gold. Gold? It's a laboratory specimen. No value to a thief. The first of the characters we meet, I think, that's actually going to go on the train with us um, and kind of become a major character in the film. I think um, Mirov makes a great impression as soon as he steps into shot. Well, for me, it's um, at the same time we meet Pujardov. Yes. Mad Monk, the Rasputin Mad Monk. Can I be of any assistance, Father? This is yours. It is, but I demand an explanation. Whatever you have here is unholy and must be destroyed. The scene I think that I remember in watching it for the first time that intrigued me when I was 11, 12 years old is the scene where he chalks across on the platform. Yeah. And you see that. And then when he tries to chalk across on the crate, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. And I remember thinking, first of all, how did they do that? I mean, it's trick chalk, obviously. But yeah. That's really good. Uh, and secondly, but I never quite understand in the film why that happens. How is the alien creature, or whatever he is, preventing... How does he deflect chalk? Um, how does he stop well, chalk Well, I've marks? got a, a simple idea of that, but, but what do you want to say, Tim? Have you got... Oh, it's rubbish. It's conjurer's trick. Yes, that's what... Well, it's hypnosis, <laughs> yoga. These mystics can be very... Yeah, conf- Everybody's on the platform is hypnotised, are they, when he, when he does that? So. Um, no, <laughs> I, I think he's able to... Well, basically what happens for, for the listener is that while the, the inspector is trying to discover the reason why that this um, thief has been killed, and he kind of explains that this man um, could pick any lock, he was a genius, he, he, he wouldn't have fought, fallen foul of something straightforward, and, um, and also everybody's mystified because the dead thief has strangely whitened eyeballs and has been bleeding from his eyes and what does that mean there is this character who is soon described by another character in the film as the mad monk which is what he looks like Uh, he's on the platform and he says you know where there is god there is always a place for the cross even on this stone floor just so But Satan is evil, and where evil is, there is no place for the cross. And, and oh, so, so he's doing it. I thought that was the alien's influence, was not allowing the chalk no, I th- to go onto the crate. He, it's a trick done by him, I see. Because I see. a little later on the train, there is another really nice character, the character played by Angel Del Pozzo. Oh, yeah. What's he Yevtushenko. called? Yevtushenko. Yevtushenko. Uh, uh, dubbed by Andrew Sachs, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, is he really? How did you know that? Because I can tell his voice. <laughs> right, okay. Um, that actor, Angel Del Bozzo, is also in uh, Pancho Villa. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if he was just speaking in his own voice, because I thought it looked like he could speak English to me, but if you say it's no, Andrew Sachs. I think, I think all the non-British actors are dubbed. 
Right. But yeah, he has that great line where he stops Christopher Lee and says, um, I was, he said, the, the wonderful line, I was on the platform earlier while that mad monk was carrying on. <laughs> this is ordinary talk, how do you suppose he did that? And Christopher Lee's response is actually hip, he says, hypnosis, yoga, these mystics can be very convincing, they can even convince themselves. And it seems like a very dismissive remark yeah. made by a rationalist who doesn't understand. Um, much like the character Christopher Lee plays in Dr. Stera's House of Horrors, which is also train-based scepticism. <laughs> There's only one element that we've not mentioned from this the whole kind of sequence in the, in the train station, which is the introduction of the character of Dr. Wells, Peter Cushing. Yes, which sort of takes place before they discover the body. That's right. Well, yes, well, thank you for that, Tim. I, I couldn't remember which happened first. Um and he's a character who I think uh, he's already known to Saxton. They've met before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it suggests they're sort of rivals in a way, or they're scientific rivals in some way. That's what yeah. it seems. It's almost like they they got some sort of history. Yeah, yeah. And I almost I I feel like possibly the reason they're rivals is because um, Wells is a bit more impish and a bit mm. more mischievous, and and um, Saxton doesn't really approve of that way of doing things. <laughs> um, and Wells has got. A female assistant, and it's kind of implied that there's something almost like sexual harassment has gone on. I think you know they, or at least, well, that's probably overstating it. But they like they they've got a banter between them, yeah. And you can't imagine Christopher Lee's character having any any relationship like that with anyone working with him. He'd see it as unprofessional. It, it becomes clear that that Saxton and Wales are actually going to be travelling together, and then everybody troops on the train. The train pulls out, and. The train is moving and the story is moving and this is like within the first 10 minutes of the film and everything is going on. And we've also established very quickly that Cushing's character, Dr. Wells, becomes aware that um, Lee has this crate with a fossil in it and he really wants to see inside it and he'd like to see what it is. And and he's there's also a nice little bit of dialogue where it's kind of established that... Um, Cushing uh, got his seat on the train by bribing some <laughs> official at the at the station, and he and he just says, "Well, that's the way you do things out here. That's normal. <laughs> that's that's like the way an Englishman conducts himself." He says it's called squeeze in China, and in Britain we call it bribery and corruption. <laughs> right, nice. Oh. Yeah, there's loads of great little lines in this. Oh, um, yeah, there are some funny lines. Um, and all credit to the screenwriters, uh, Julian Halevi, which is a pseudonym for an Amer- a blacklisted American writer called Julian Zemet. Um, and Arnaud Dusso, I think that's how oh, you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's another American, although not sounding American, but I think Italian-American screenwriter, also blacklisted. These were guys who couldn't work in Hollywood um, because of uh, Sanders McCarthy's witch hunts and... and, and came over looking for European productions to work on. And the producer of this film, Bernard Gordon, was an American producer as well. Again, who he was a producer and a writer, and he couldn't get writing work over in America, which is why he came over and um, and tried to get productions going in Europe. And he'd worked with the director of this film, uh, Eugenio Martin, who, who basically who was the guy who had done Pancho Villa, and he came up with the idea of, well, let's do this kind of science fiction horror film on a train he gave the story idea to the writers are you familiar with bernard gordon's previous work um i know the name um he wrote the freddie francis film of the day of the triffids but he did it under a pseudonym i'm not surprised he did it under a pseudonym right 
Um, it, Having he, seen it again fairly recently. It's credited to, to Philip Jordan, which I always thought was a made-up name that Bernard Gordon <laughs> made up, because I said, oh, that rhymes with my name, hmm. Philip Jordan. But actually, Philip Jordan was a real writer who gave Bernard Gordon permission to use his name because he knew that he wouldn't be able to... Right. Um, get official credit, uh, certainly in, in the US market. Um, and uh, Bernard Gordon has a, a, a vast library of, of production credits, of kind of European co-production movies. He produced Pancho Villa and Gene, Martin, uh, Gene Martin's previous film as well. And I think that um, uh, Gene Martin was a guy, uh, well, like I say, his name was Eugenio Martin. I think he credited, credited himself as Gene Martin because it sounded more American. <laughs> and I think he was someone who had ambitions to make films in Hollywood. And he'd been making movies since the early 60s. But I think this movie is possibly the nearest he ever got. Yes. Um, because he he never did do an actual American movie. That's a shame because it's... I think it's really well done. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, again, partly because the script is so good, but the film is so visually focused. Um, the storytelling is so tight. Pancho Villa, not so much. It's a bit all over the place, but that's more of an action story and it's kind of based on truth. So there are random story elements in it which you only get in true stories in a way. Yeah. But this, is, this whole thing is just very... Um, very kind of finely crafted. Well, it's very suspenseful. And it's, it is scary. There are some really scary moments that work really well. Yeah. So once we're on the train, we have a, um, a scene where Cushing and Lee are actually given the same cabin and kind of bicker over who gets the top bunk, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, we have the introduction of a, a character uh, played by Helga Line, who is a woman who blatantly doesn't have a, a ticket for the journey but charms her way into Cushing's cabin. <laughs> well, this is what I want... Because I, when I watched this film, I thought, what are the... Because like Tim says, I think if you didn't know, you'd think this was a Hammer film, or you think this was a British horror film yeah. of the time. It looks like one, and Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. And when I was watching it, ready for this, I thought, what are the, how, what are the things that make it a European film rather than a British one? What, what are the differences? And one of the differences, I thought, when I was watching this, was that both Christopher Lee's character and Peter Cushing's character have a kind of romantic interest, have a love interest. Christopher Lee has the very beautiful Countess, who appears, and we haven't mentioned yet, but... Yes. And Peter Cushing has this very glamorous female spy. Although nothing really happens, there's no snogging or anything, but there's definitely some kind of, yeah. I think, a flirtation. There's, you know, there's definitely something there. Something is suggested there. And that didn't happen in the British horror films. You know, if, no. if you're middle-aged, you don't, you, don't, you don't have sex or fall in love <laughs> or anything, those things. You know, you, you leave that to the young people. Whereas... In a European film, which is a bit more relaxed about sex and about that sort of, about all that, and a bit less uptight, they can. The, these two characters can have mm -hmm. some kind of romantic, some kind of person. Christopher Lee, I mean, despite playing Dracula in almost all the horror films I can think of, he is a, completely a bachelor. He has no personal life. He has no. He's not married or has any kind of romantic side to his character at all. In the skull and the gorg and all these things, he's just you know doesn't seem to have any kind of. And Peter Cushing is always playing a widower. Now maybe that's because. After his wife died in real life, he felt more comfortable doing that. I don't know, but, you know, very rarely do either of those actors, because they're in their 40s, 50s, whatever, have a kind of love interest. And in this film, they do. And I, just watching it again, it struck me, yes, there's sort of... That's allowed, because it's European, and they're a bit freer about it, and less uptight than we are about sex. Yes. And love. 
And um, Helga Lina was uh, not someone who was uptight about sex and love. She's in a lot of... Um, she looks like she isn't. Fa- fairly um, explicit yeah. um, European movies, but a lot of horror movies. She, Although I think this is probably the only um, time she was in a film with like a, a British or American genre star. She did a lot of continental horror movies she's in a few films with Paul Nashi who is a Spanish Paul Nashi I've never seen a film with Paul Nashi I mean he's a kind of a legend yeah because he played so many in, werewolves it's like werewolves it's just so many films you look at his um, like CV on IMDb or whatever there's, there's loads of stuff I haven't seen any of it yeah um, and all these films have all got about 16 different titles you know sort of. and I just I just like to see yeah because Paul Nashi was a huge star huge horror star in, in Europe in Spain anyway well. yeah and no absolutely um but also I think that the introduction of Helga Lina's character is just really deftly done and is emblematic of the way everything in the movie has a very considered purpose. Like the um, the scene with the, the thief on the platform earlier on has a purpose to it, which we we can kind of... Def- it's never kind of explicitly told us. No one hammers us over the head with it. But Inspector Mirov on the platform says this guy could pick any lock and then and then he's found dead. These little subtle things that are being set up um, come into play a little bit later. I think it's really, really clever. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, and Helga Lino's character is, you know, a, a, a mysterious woman who clearly doesn't belong on the train. Will that come up later? Well, yes, it will. Um, quite effectively, it all kind of dovetails into the plot. It's kind of been established that, that Dr. Wells bribes people and wants to know what's in the crate. So he naturally... When he has a moment alone with the baggage man in no. the goods van, <laughs> he's a character who, if this was actually a Hammer film, I'm sure he would be played by Michael. Rupert. I am sure. I did. I did play that game of trying to think who, if this was a British film, who would play those parts. Uh, and I'm sure Michael Ripper would be the baggage man. But um, the actor is uh, called something Israel, I think. Oh, is he? And um, and there's a nice touch which is that the baggage man whistles the theme tune of the film, which I feel like is just a subtle nod maybe to The Lady Vanishes, which is occasionally, this film is kind of compared to it because The Lady Vanishes has the um, the classical British comedy duo of Charters and Caldicott yeah. in it, and Lee and Cushing in this film are kind of compared to them sometimes because it is a rare film where Lee and Cushing are playing two guys on the same side, yes, yeah. um, and they have this kind of comic interplay. But The Lady Vanishes also has a kind of key plot point, which is a whistled tune that somebody hears on the train. And then you get this baggage man whistling this tune, which later on in the film is then heard. And, and the Countess character is playing the same tune yeah. <laughs> on on the piano and stops and goes, oh, somebody's whistling my tune. You are jumping ahead slightly there, but we'll come to that in a second. I am, yes. <laughs> but, but I just wanted to mention yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't say why the tune comes back. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, the uh, yeah, the baggage man kind of um, accepts... Um, Dr. Wells's bribe and opens up the crate, um, and then we have the first kind of our first real hint of what is unearthly about this creature. So this is where the first kind of of several plot spoilers comes. So anybody listening who's not seen this film yet, now is your final chance to meaningfully <laughs> stop listening. Why are you still listening? You should be 
onto this film and watching it now. Yes, for God's sake, go go and watch it. It's worth it. It really if we, is. If we haven't sold it to you by now, then then you're not going to watch it. Simple as that. I'm going to say one more thing to try and sell it. I think you could take almost the same script and film it now um, with, you know, the stars of today. Agreed. And it would be acclaimed as a great genre movie, a kind of genre blending, a bit like... Um, there was a film last year which was acclaimed in some quarters, not in some others, called Overlord, which kind of mashed the D-Day landings with zombie stuff and Nazis, and uh, uh, and it went down really well in some quarters. But No, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think it would go down well as a blockbuster now. Um, yeah. I just because the monster is really original. Mm. It's, it's not just another werewolf vampire thing. They were. It is a creature of another world, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just what he... What he does and what he's trying to do, and it, it's just much more imaginative than the usual thing that yes. he might have had in films at, the, at that time. Yeah, I think that the monster is kind of combined um, uh, with the thing and with Quatermass and the pit, those kind of ideas, but it's done in a way that's very controlled and works really well entirely yeah. on its own merits. There's yeah. only a, a couple of things that I would describe almost as plot holes or plot questions. Actually, here's one. I don't think you're ever really told why Inspector Mirov is on the train. I assume, because basically Mirov turns up quite quickly once the train is moving, and I I think we're just left to assume that because a man died mysteriously on the platform, the police have just said, well, then it must have something to do with this train, so they've yes. put the inspector on the train. Is that... Well, that never occurred to me, but yes. Um, I... I always assumed he was travelling on the train anyway. Yeah, I, th- I always thought he was travelling on the train anyway. And he was oh, on the passengers. Okay. Yeah, but he just ha- happened to be a police inspector. But he, no, he does have men with him, though, doesn't he? He I has. Mean, that's his. <laughs> <laughs> that's his entourage, baby. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I mean, let's start intruding. So. Sure. Well, no, well, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Don't forget, then. don't forget. Um, somebody called General Wang sends uh, a bunch of his soldiers, soldiers to assist um, Alexander Saxton as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So obviously, there are there are important people traveling on the train, having you know soldiers and that assisting them. That's what it seems to be, anyway. You know, these are supposed to be kind of dangerous times when this film is set, and yeah. you know, sort of. A, so I think it makes sense for the police inspector to have. I mean, it could be. Yeah, he, he wants to know who's killed that thief, so he goes on it. So I don't... okay, so I just wanted to raise that question. So <laughs> uh, anyway, the, getting back to the baggage man opening the crate. Can I just say one thing before you get back to that? Oh, go on. Just before the scene starts, we say we have this final uh, agreement that Dr. Wells, uh, Alexander, Sa- Alexander Saxton, and this mysterious lady are going to share the compartment together. And uh, there's a really funny line where, um, where Dr. Wells says to Saxton, Couldn't you double up with somebody else? Miss Jones. And he's like, steady on. Miss <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jones is Dr. Wells' assistant. And at that point, the, the woman decides you know, to take advantage of the situation to say, look, I'm sure we'll all get along very well together. And that establishes the fact that, right, here we are, they're all together. And then we go into the baggage man scene. That's like the signifier that, okay, we've established everybody. Now let's start moving the plot. Yes. Um, I think the only characters we've not mentioned who have also been established by this point are the the counter countess, yes, aren't they? Yes. So there is um there's um a, ca- yes. a carriage on the train which is reserved for the this travelling counter and countess and the mad monk, the previously referred to mad monk, is in their <laughs> employ. It seems to me they're almost like uh, Nicholas and Alexandra kind of characters because they have yeah. Rasputin. So uh, 
Yeah, yeah well, he, he is Countess, a sort of. He is basically Rasputin, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is Rasputin. He's Rasputin, and I believe I believe Christopher Lee has played Rasputin too, right? Yes, in the the nineteen sixty six Hammer film Rasputin, the Mad Monk. Yeah, basically, if Christopher Lee was not playing yeah. Alexander Saxton in this film, he would be playing the Mad Monk. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've established those. Too, and I think there's a, there's a scene where um, Christopher Lee meets the Countess, doesn't he? Because she comes. Yeah, in. so she's called Countess Irina Petrovsky, and she's very beautiful. And and they're they're basically they're Russian royals, aren't they? No, they're not. They're um they're Polish. Yes, yeah, right. She meant no. She mentions that they're Polish. That's right. Yeah, there is a, a wonderfully flirtatious dialogue between the Countess and um, Saxton. Oh yes, England, Queen Victoria, crumpets, Shakespeare. I admire Poland, madam. I believe that there is a bond between our countries. My husband, the Count Petrovsky, says that in the 15th century, your King Henry betrayed us to the Russians. Hmm. I hope that you and your husband, madam, will accept my profoundest apologies. This is just continuing this character building of Saxton and and their introduction at the same time. But it's, it's that kind of subtle wit yeah. that uh, runs through it. Yeah. yeah. So it just makes it a bit sort of... Uh, and the account is played by Sylvia Tortosa. Yes. Who I think it's very good. If, if there are listeners who are still not turned off the thing <laughs> and gone and gone to watch the film, um, before we actually go to the next plot point, I think there's a few things that we can discuss without spoilers. One of them is the fact that this is a really important film to watch for Cushing and Lee fans. Mm. Not just because it's a rare example of them not being antagonists in a film, but at least, I, I don't know this for a fact, I haven't counted it myself, but according to an interview that's on YouTube with Joe Dante, who's a fan of this film, he says it is the movie where Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee have the most screen time together of any of their films. Well, I can believe it, because, uh, I mean, this was the film that was made soon after Peter Cushing's wife died. And apparently the story goes that when he got to Spain, he suddenly had a kind of attack. He said, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm not ready for it yet. And Christopher Lee kind of had to say, no, no, it's fine. I'll help you through it. So Peter Cushing was in a very fragile, very vulnerable state at that time. And he didn't really like going out of the country anyway. Yeah. Um, so kind of like Christopher Lee sort of persuaded him to stay and kind of got him through it. So perhaps they had a lot of scenes together just so they, they were together and he could sort of, re- Christopher Lee could reassure Peter Cushing and just sort of... Yeah, so, I don't know. And and you know, I, I something I realised when thinking about this film is that uh, this kind of period, seventy two, seventy three, is the other kind of g- real productive period of the Peter Cushing Christopher Lee partnership. You know, the the first period is between fifty seven and sixty ish, where yes. they they made l- several films. But in just seventy two and seventy three, I think they're in five films together. Because they're both in this and Dracula AD seventy two and Standing Rights of Dracula, nothing but the night, and nothing but the night, and the creeping, creeping flesh, flesh. Um, and Peter Cushing was in uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and Christopher Lee was in The Wicker Man, yeah. all in that two year period. Yeah, you know that's incredible, and and maybe there is something that that Cushing was in grief, and he really needed to work. Yes, I think, and and Lee wanted to work with him to help. Yes, him. I think I think there's an element that Christopher Lee wanted to. Help Peter Cushing it kind through of that period, and so he worked with him. Would explain why in that period, Lee's in a couple of films at least, which he says are terrible, but he yeah. did them anyway for some yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other thing I think we should mention before we move on is just um, the dubbing in this movie. <laughs> I think it, it can't go unmentioned any further. Um, although you did talk about Andrew Sachs, um, which I didn't know about. Yes, it's Andrew Sachs's voice. I'm, I'm sure it is. I didn't know this either. 
this is a reveal for me. I mean, you've literally just destroyed all my Horror Express dreams forever. Oh, well, oh, wow. uh, why? Did you have your own idea about who was Angel Del Pozo's voice? I actually thought it was the original actors uh, voicing over themselves. Oh, okay. I didn't realise they had they had English people um, you know, doing voiceovers for them. I didn't. I didn't. I had no idea. Well, I'm not sure about absolutely everybody, but the only actors who we definitely know did their own voices in the film are Cushing, Lee and Savalas. I think everybody else is dubbed. I always assume Miss Jones's voice was her own. Not according to Wikipedia. Oh, right. According to Wikipedia, Miss Jones, the Countess and uh, the Helgelina character are all dubbed by the same actress. Oh. It was called Olive Gregg. Is it not Nicky Van Der Zyl? It's not Nicky no. Van Der Zyl who, who, who dubs almost every other female voice in British cinema at the time. See, the only reason... Stop the only reason... it! <laughs> Stop saying all this to me! You're destroying the illusion! Uh, the only reason we know it's dubbed is because they always use the same people to dub these things. There's an actor called Robert Rietti, and it's always his voice in all the Bond films and all any films that are filmed partly or in Europe or whatever. They always get him, like, he... I think he had his own well, studio or something, didn't he? And he sort of... I'm not sure. But I, I will say this to you, Tim. The one that I knew for certain is that uh, Robert Rietti dubs at least six characters because he's the voice of um, the monk. Yeah. Um, and he, it's definitely him. And he, he also dubbed a number of James Bond villains and a number of kind of more minor characters in Bond films. So I kind of I, I got used to recognising his voice. And I could tell that was... The first time I watched the film, I was like, that monk is definitely Robert Rietti. Mm. When I watched it again, I realised that there's about five more minor characters who are also him doing slightly different voices. Well, there's a version of um, And Then There Were None, made in about 1974, 75. Mm. Uh, one of those terrible European co-productions. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, in fact, Albert De Martino, who plays the Mad Monk, plays the servant in, and oh, they were okay. on. And Kurt Jürg, um, Gert Froeber's in it, and a lot of, and Robert Rietti dubs about four different. Right. And it all sound the same. But there's a thing; he doesn't even try to do different accents for them or different voices. They all kind of more or less sound the same. So he even dubs Charles Aznavour, uh, and it's it's right. it sounds like all the others. So, so he's, I think he's got a very distinctive. And the more you listen to him, the more distinctive it kind of more obvious it is when you watch any of these films that have been dubbed. So, I've got a question. Go on, Tim. So, all these people who've been dubbed by the same person, um, when they originally... Because I know that no um, vocal sound was recorded for the film. Everybody was dubbed, even the people dubbing themselves. Which was the um, standard practice in, like, spaghetti westerns and Spanish productions, yeah. So, the people who were dubbed by somebody else... Did they? Is this because they, when when they originally filmed the film, they did all their lines and scenes in their own language? Um, I have actually worked on a, an international co-production film, and that might be the case because when I, the one that I worked on, it was a mixture of German and British actors, and the German actors said their lines in German, and the British actors said their lines in English. Um, as if they could understand each other, but they couldn't. They were just kind of saying the script, and then it was dubbed later. I was dubbed in it, because it was a German film, and I said my lines in English, but they dubbed me later. I didn't dub myself. So, yeah, I think, I, I assume that that is the thing. But some of the actors do look to me like they're speaking English. Like, um, Miss Jones, I thought that's definitely her own voice, yeah. because the voice matched her lips so clearly. Yeah, I thought it was her voice, yeah. that's why I thought it was. But um, 
Not according to Wikipedia, no, anyway. No, no. This has come as quite a shock to me, I have to say. Right, okay. I really thought that, that, that they all you know, just redubbed themselves. I had no idea that you've got certain characters being played by the same person. Well, it's interesting because, um, obviously, in a lot of co-productions, you get a lot of dubbing going on. And we, we Howard and I spoke about an earlier film in which Christopher Lee played Sherlock Holmes, uh, called Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace which is a German film, and um, everybody in that film is dubbed, including Christopher Lee, not by himself. <laughs> it's as if the producers didn't think, this guy's a big star, people will know if it's not his voice. And, they, and it's got a complete... It's got an American-sounding voice. Huh. Um, huh. It's uh, Professor Moriarty. <laughs> um, so at least watch that on Horror Express, they had the detail to realise, you know, if we dub Telly Savalas, people will, <laughs> will will sense it's not right, even though it is quite strange that he's the only Russian in the film with an American accent. Yeah, well, I mean, um, but, you know, but it's Telly Savalas, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, I, mean, I think the dubbing's pretty good. It, it is it, good, it doesn't, I think. It's not as bad as some I've seen. In, in... Well, it convinced me, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well... People like um, Miss Jones and Yevtushenko, if I'm saying that right, and Inspector um, Mirov are all great characters where even though it might be a different actor doing the voices does the face, the combination of those two actors produce a really good character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how would I discussed Mirov with you before and you thought it was Roger Delgado doing the voice? I, I read somewhere it was Roger Delgado. Wikipedia says it was, and while I was watching it, um, I don't know if you know t uh, Roger Delgado, Tim, he was the original master in Doctor Who in the 70s. Right, yeah. And um, this uh, would have been one of his last roles, because he died. Tell him, I couldn't tell it was Roger Delgado, I have to say. Um, well, I, when I was watching it, I kept closing my eyes and listening to him and thinking, is that Roger Delgado doing an accent? And, and, and I thought, yeah. Yes, it, is, it yeah. definitely well, is. Well, I'll watch it again. There was nothing about that voice that screamed not Roger Delgado to me, especially when you've seen him in things like the Hammer film, um, uh, The Mummy Shroud, oh. where he does kind of generic villainous foreign accent. I know thing. Roger Delgado was one of the dubbing people because there's a film called Waterloo, yeah. and one of the colonels, or general, one of Napoleon's generals, is voiced by Roger Delgado. And right. I could tell that, that in that film he was very... Recognisable. So yeah, I think we had to we had to um, touch on the the, uh, the double cast of this film. Mm. Um, but um, the the and I'm glad we've had some revelations here to, to each of us. I certainly didn't know the Andrew Sachs thing. Yeah. Um, well, so. absolutely fascinating. But I am going to wipe my mind this conversation and still enjoy the film with the illusion that they're all playing themselves. That's fair enough, Tim. Um, it's, it's one <laughs> of, dubbing is because Howard and I are both uh, James Bond fans, and, and in the early Bond films, so many characters are dubbed. I think all the women in the first Bond film are played by the same actor, the same voice actor. Um, and we just got interested in it. Yeah, well, we just, yeah, it's just. I mean, when I was a kid, there were things on like Monkey. There was a series called Monkey where. Oh yeah. Uh, everybody was dubbed, and Andrew Sachs did the voices for that as well. So right. he, he, again, he was one of those people that they called upon to dub things. He was particularly adept at doing that. So. I'm joking, of course. I'm, I'm actually pretty grateful this, of this, you know, extra bit of uh, knowledge to the rest of my Horror Express knowledge. I thought I knew everything, and I clearly don't. So thank you very much. Oh, great. Well, no, you're very welcome. Uh, and I, I like the fact that. You know, it's already a pretty. Um, it's a, it's a film that's cast with icons already, with Lee and Cushing and Telly Savalas in it. But when you add Delgado and um, Sachs, who 
they're fam more famous for other things, but they've also got um, British horror cinema roots. Mm. You know, Sax is in Frightmare, um, Delgado's in a few Hammer films. Yeah. So, um, you know, that just kind of increases the, the treasures of it for me to have those actors involved as well. Um, so I think now is the point where we actually move on with the plot. And I'm, I'm kind of aware that, that this podcast is, is running long, so we might not linger on every detail. But we have this key moment where the baggage man opens the crate and sees the face of the creature and its eye glows red. Or I think... It's got two glowing eyes, but you, it looks like there's only one of them yeah, glowing yeah. at this point. Um, and this is the first time that um, you realise the significance of uh, of eyes in the movie and why the, the dead thief on the platform had white eyeballs. And basically, somehow, the, the creature, by staring at the, um, at the baggage man, is able to kill him, and he's left dead with whitened, bleeding eyeballs. Um, and then... After right after that, uh, because the baggage man kind of half opened the crate, I think, or he'd, he'd made a hole in it or something, the hand of the creature reaches out and it finds uh, a nail which it bends yeah. and it uses the bent nail to pick the lock. Other way around, um, that happens before the baggage man dies. Oh, does it? He tries, yeah, basically the creature tries to get out. Oh, that's true. Basically, that's the baggage right. man opens up the little slit, looks at what's inside, and then he walk, then he walks out and goes to bed, I think. Well, yes, I think yeah. he's going to bed. <laughs> and then that's the point where the creature's hand, um, you know, comes out. Because earlier, um, just before the, just before the tra train sets off, you hear a growl from the crate. Yes. And Saxon's a little bit confused about this. What is in there should be, should be, should have been dead millions of years ago. So he opens up, checks it out, and it's still intact and pretty much, you know, very much, very much dead. But he is noticing that it's starting to thaw out a bit. And of course, this is the point where you see that this this hand is now completely thawed, and it's reaching around as you say, finds the nail. And I should say as well, a really good-looking monster hand. Yes. You know, it doesn't look like a hairy glove. No, no, it, it looks doesn't. like a creature. Um, a really good-looking monster. Yeah, um, but what I love about this moment where the hand um, kind of picks the lock is that nobody says it, but you just the audience remembers in their mind this creature has is somehow responsible for the death of a man who was described as being able to pick any lock. Yeah, and what does yeah. that tell us? Somehow the creature has absorbed that knowledge, which is so uh, obviously. It's, it it becomes crucial to the plot that it can do yes, that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's subtle as it's really, really subtle. Yeah. Because it actually, we know this because we've seen the film so many times. I think on first viewing, people won't pick up on that at all. They'll just think, how on earth is this creature managing to pick a lock? <laughs> yeah. No, no. I remember um, this time when I watched it, I, for a second, I thought it's a bit silly. The creature is somehow clever enough to open a lock. But then I remembered <laughs> the, the kind of pickpocket thing. And I thought, and I was like, oh, of course. Well, I'm um, sure the first couple of times because, I saw it, I didn't pick up on that. So yeah, because I mean, just... as Mirov himself said, this guy could could open any trunk with a hairpin. So he was, you know, yeah, he was an expert in this field. So then, so that's the creature um, is now loose. But something else happened. Yeah. So after the baggage man dies, something else happens. You hear the creature whistling the theme tune, just as the baggage man does. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So again, it kind of um, it cements that idea. 
Because, yeah, the baggage man was whistling that tune, then, then it kills the baggage man, and then we have the creature whistling, and the countess hears it when she's playing the same tune. I'm not sure how she... Is it just a coincidence that she was playing that tune? I think it might have been a popular tune of the time. It was obviously number one in, in uh, 1906. In Poland uh, yeah. and China. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a global number one. <laughs> uh, but, no, that, that's a, again, that's a lovely kind of piece of... It's a subtle way of giving plot exposition, but it's also a bit creepy. This this thawed creature is whistling a tune yeah. on this train full of people it's going to make into its victims, or we don't even know what it wants them for yet, but, you know, judging by what it's done to the baggage man and to the thief on the platform, it doesn't wish anybody good, you know? Um, so that that's a really nice moment. And, of course, at this point, uh, of the, the mad monk, Rasputin, is freaking out still because he's convinced they've bought hell on the train they've bought the devil on the train you know and again this is nice writing i think we think he's freaking out because he's an oversensitive <laughs> very religious man but actually well we discover later it's probably more excitement he's terribly excited that um uh, that there is this thing on the train and actually he wants to discover evil a source of evil well when Find out what happens later on. Yeah, you realise why you so. Well, I think even at this point, though, when you know uh, that again, that conversation between Saxton and Yetrzejemko, where he says, you know, he convinced himself that that he could that not draw a cross on this thing, it just says that that character really wants to discover evil, mm. and he's and he, he's kind of almost engineering the situation. And it's not because there is a creature in there. He he he's always looking for it. And so again. The plot's really elegant, and we have plot developments that kind of come from character motivations that are just lovely, I think, again. So, Tim, I think I'm going to hand over the kind of ongoing plot summation to you, because <laughs> you, you know it much better than me. So what what's our next bit? I love this bit. <laughs> right. So you have Mirov, he's, he's found the baggage man's... He's in the, the baggage compartment, the which is the, you know, as you know, it's right at the back of the train, and he's found the baggage man's hat which has got all the screws in it which is used to unscrew the uh, the crate to look inside but there's no sign of the baggage man so he's he's summoned uh, dr wells and and saxton just on the off chance they might know where he is for some reason you know right and they turn up wells is already completely convinced that it's something to do with what's inside the crate because he obviously told the baggage man to look in there and now he's gone missing trying to get into the crate so but obviously, Saxon's on the suspicion hit because he doesn't want anyone to see what's inside. They basically say, you know, give me the key. He doesn't. He chucks it out the window. And so uh, the soldiers hold Saxon while uh, Mirov and his assistant try and get in using an axe. They get in using the axe. And then we have, in my opinion, one of the funniest, well, probably the second funniest line of the film. Because it's, it's serious, but it's so it's sort of sar- sarcastic, sardonic, and ironic at the same time. It's sort of, they open up the crate. And inside, you see not the creature, but the dead baggage man. And Saxton says, "My God, it's the baggage man." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> that wonderfully pointed bit of script. I think that image of the baggage man's face in that in that opened crate is yes. just great, though. Lo- lovely kind of subtly horrific it scared the living s out of me when i was a kid because obviously i wasn't expect wasn't expecting it when i first saw it and it made me jump because it's very it's a very sudden because they they open it up and you don't see what's inside and they sort of step back a, it, in shock and then it's a very sudden cut and it's a close-up shot of the baggage man inside 
Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful scene. Saxon suggests that obviously the creature killed him, and obviously Dr. Wells is like, what, an ape that lived two billion years ago has, has killed the baggage man, then locks everything up and, and, and escaped, is he? Well, he's like, yes, it must be alive. So at this point, they're not taking any chances. They say, right, lock Saxon up, we're going to search the train, find it and kill it, whatever it is, then we're going to destroy it. Um, and, they, and also, don't tell anybody, just keep this amongst yourselves. So the next scene is the soldiers searching the train. Yeah, so at that point... Uh, Mirov sends his soldiers to look for the creature, and we get some wonderfully atmospheric stalking sequences. There's a wonderful scene where the creature's in a compartment with two children sleeping. Oh, yes. And I think that's really scary. That's really well done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, And um, then we have... I think the characters are led to believe that the creature has left the train or jumped off the train after they find the soldiers dead. When actually... um, does it just open the door and then go somewhere else and go and hide somewhere else? Basically, after it's killed the soldier, yes, yeah, so one of the soldiers dies. After it's killed the soldier, um, his his mate who's been searching with him finds him dead and just sees the door flapping. So what what, what the creature's done is just got on top of the train and then sort of crawled across the top of the train to another part of it. Well, because because, it, because he's a defrosted ape man, it doesn't matter if he's outside the cold, he's used to it. No, I think that makes sense. Um, so, and while that's going on, I think we have the autopsy scene, don't we? Yeah, so basically, Mirov wants to know how all these people are dying, because they seem to all have the same symptom, which is these white eyes and, you know, and blood and everything else coming out of the eyes. So Dr. Wells goes to Miss Jones and says, like, I, need, I need your help. Um, at this time, Dr. Wells is dining with, um, I forgot his name, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, Tishenko, you know, isn't it? Yeah, him and, and the spy lady. And he says, I need your assistance. And she looks at them both and just says, uh, well, at your age, I'm not surprised. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, that, that is a good line. Yes. yes. I remember that. When I and then he's like, well, that. no, not that. And the autopsy. She's like, oh, that's <laughs> different, you know. <laughs> So they need to do an autopsy on the baggage man. That's that. That's that's what we get onto to find find out how he died. And the autopsy scenes. There's a couple of them in the movie, and they're really well done. They're quite graphic, but there's something a bit genteel about them as well, though, which is maybe why Leslie Halliwell, who Howard and I were talking before the podcast about how Halliwell seems to like this film quite a lot. He only gives it one star. Yeah, but that's I mean, a lot for Halliwell compared to some of the other most of no films of the time. Um, yeah, and and he does call it ingenious, which um, I believe it is. Would it? Yeah, it is. Yes, I mean that that I think the one image that stands out. Anybody seen this film is the way people die, is the white eyes and the blood mm. coming from the eyes and coming from the mouth. The first time I saw this film, that was the thing that's stuck with me. You know that image, of, um, which is never you know not done in any other film. This was completely original. The way this creature killed people, and it's horrific when you see this blood coming from their eyes, and yeah. the way it's shot, they're all swaying around and sort of and weird music.
I remember my mother saying to me when I was first watching the film, just before the you know, just before the baggage man gets killed, she says, "Oh, this is horrible. This bit, by the way, blood comes out of his eyes." And I thought, "Oh, that sounds lovely." <laughs> and then it happened, and I was like, "Oh, you know." And that, yeah, it sticks with you. The, the the you know the white, not just the red eyes, but also the white eyes and the blood coming out of the eyes. It's it it's it's an iconic image that goes to the film so much so. Um, one of the video copies I used to own actually has. Literally, um, the spy lady. Spoiler alert! With 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 white eyes and you know, and blood coming out of her eyes, as the as the image on the front cover. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking yeah. of the spy lady, so um, obviously the listener doesn't know who that is because we haven't revealed yeah. that we have a spy yet. But um, the Helgalina character around this time uh, breaks into the goods van, I think, and she yeah. is yeah, yeah. cracking Count Petrovsky's safe. At which point yes. she is ambushed by the creature who does its glowing eye thing, and so Helgeline goes all white eyeballed and bleeding from the eyes, and and is out of the movie. But it's then revealed Camp uh, Trotsky knows that she was a spy and she and what she was after, and it's a really nice way of again setting up something that will be needed in the story later because of the nature of. The um the jewels I think is it that's it that are in the same. Yes, is it is it is, is she after? Um, well, if she's a spy, I thought she was after plans. But if she's just a, I don't know. She's a spy trying to get hold of the of steel and. Oh, yeah, it's a new oh, kind steel, of steel. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. And again, and again, that will become important later. And another plot point which which comes around about now is during the autopsy of the baggage man. Um, his brain is found to be, in the words of Miss Jones, smooth as a baby's butter. <laughs> and did you notice something when she when, when she touches it? You got the light swinging above, causing a squeak, and it's, it looks like his brain is squeaking. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I love the moment. I'm not sure if it's in this scene or or, or later um, when. Um, Cushing is is making the decision and asks Miss Jones to hold the light straight, stop it swinging. Just just that kind of detail. Yeah, it's very Cushing as well. I yeah, wonder yes, if that was yeah. in the script or if he just added that. It does appear to me that it could be ad libbed because it's very naturally done. Yeah, and so from that, from the fact that the brain has been made smooth, the scientists infer that his memories have been drained, which again confirms. The ideas which have been planted in the audience that the creature is somehow absorbing the ideas and talents of the people it kills. You know, again, just everything just falling into place really, really wonderfully. And there's one quick thing. Um, in, the, in the dinner scene, they bring out a fish which has got a white eye and they look at it. Uh, Dr. Wells looks at it very strangely and they're like, well, what's wrong? And he's like, well, the eye of that fish is white. And they say, well, naturally it's boiled. Oh, so again, just another little thing yes. added in there. Very strange. Uh, in uh, Halliwell's film guide, Leslie Halliwell writes a very strange summary of the story of this film, and I think it basically says it doesn't mention the train or anything like that. It says a scientist discovers a frozen creature which has the power to boil people's eyes. <laughs> but that's literally why the eyes go white because they're being boiled, but by the uh, by the by the strength of the red eyes. And it doesn't dwell on it at all, and it's not sadistic about the way it presents it, but but imagine the pain of that, you know, what a way to, yeah. to go. Um, oh, horrible. Yeah. Um, so 
the plot's continuing to thicken. Well, basically, straight after the autopsy scene, we've already covered the fact that, that the spy tries to, tries to steal the steel and <laughs> ends up being killed by the creature. And he, she's almost discovered by Dr. Wells, who wondered, wondered where the hell she's gone, because she said she was just going to go to the bathroom. Um, and then he gets grabbed by the creature, and the creature then tries to get him, and then Mirov turns up and shoots the creature to death. And then he passes out, because something strange happens between them. Um, and then, yeah, we go, we go from there. It's kind of clear at that point, because the creature stares into Mirov's eyes, and Mirov stares back, and he doesn't kill Mirov. The creature appears to no. die, but something happens, and we're led to think... Well, I'd, I don't think there's any there's no confirmation at that point but I think because of the type of thing that the the film has seeded into our understanding of how the creature works we suspect that some kind of transference has yes, happened yeah. but to all also, intents and purposes the, the creature is dead Sorry. the music in that moment is incredibly creepy it is yeah yeah it's it's got this very woozy um spooky quality um and, and Mirov obviously kind of faints at that point and then we have this kind of mysterious section of the film. It's only a few minutes long where the creature appears to be dead, but we gradually get the idea that it is somehow still around. And a figure that seems to... Ha- we don't see the face of the figure, but we see the f- the, the, the hairy hand, yeah. <laughs> um, which, is, um, has, it, which is another tell um, that... This this creature with this with this hand is still around and still can, it interferes with the the um, dissected bodies and things like that. Basically, there's an off-screen autopsy of um, of the spy, and then Mirov's recovering in bed, and that's when Saxton comes to him and explains his theory. That he thinks this creature has taken ideas directly from people's brains, transferring it to his own. Oh yes, and, uh, and Mirov says, "I am just a humble policeman. I don't have much education." <laughs> yeah, so so he does it in basically layman's term. It's taking you know people's knowledge from their brains, and he's absorbing their brains because he said, "Oh, they're sucking." Are they? Is he sucking their brains? No, no, he's absorbing their brains through their eyes. And so, so, so basically. If he absorbed all of your knowledge, then it'll be then all of your knowledge would go into his brain, and he'll be clever clever as you. And he said, "Well, no, much more clever than me, because what he's added, what he's taken from me, will be added to the learning that you already had." So he's taken information from the baggage man, the thief, and the spy. So already he's got combined knowledge of those three. Yes, and again, I think this is the point maybe to talk a little bit about Christopher Lee in this film because we've not really mentioned him too much. And I think one of the things which shows his strength as a star and an actor is that he's able to do a scene like this which is very kind of expositional and possibly not very interesting for an actor to play. But he not only puts it over, but he puts over like the humility of the character who was previously so blustery. Well, there's a very interesting character moment. Again, it's one of the differences between a European film, maybe a British film, is that when he's talking to the Countess and she's saying, the baggage man is dead and you don't care. And he says, yes, you're right, madam. I don't care as much as I should. Yes. And I think what a lovely little scene. There. Yeah, that's a great bit of self-awareness. There's a character developing. There's a character who's aware of his own failings. In the British horror films, a lot of them, he's just the stern authoritarian figure who just is the villain or whatever he is. But but here's something, you can see the human being beneath that stern, sort of um, slightly aloof 
personality that he has. You're right, and it does slowly emerge as as the film and the plot progresses. Yes, and uh, and he's, uh, you know, they always bang on about like the hero's journey these days in terms of screenwriting, how you construct your character development. Um, and I think you can see him change from a not very sympathetic character to a character who is, basically, who is a hero. Who yeah, he the does. End... He saves the day at the end. He does. Yeah. He's saving other people's lives. And, uh, and also, oh, I just wonder if that's the Countess's influence there. Because she gives him never... someone to care about. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I don't want to spoil the ending of the film at this point, but I think that's, that's quite arguable, actually. I think I'd like to say at this point as well that Cushing's character is quite nicely shaded and complex yeah. as well because he is the guy who essentially causes all the trouble by yes. causing the creatures to be released but he immediately says I shouldn't have done that that was foolish of me I've, I've caused all this and then he does everything he, he can to kind of put the situation right at that point he never quite loses his irrepressible um, sort of British sense of humour yeah. <laughs> he's, he's always lightening yeah. things a bit but, but you know the, so both of them are playing really good kind of layered roles yeah, in this Yeah, they're sort of playing their usual roles, but with a bit more to it. So then this this kind of brings us to the scene following the dissection of the creature, that they they are studying its eyes and um, looking at parts of its retina under a microscope and seeing the images in its actual eyes, and, that's, uh, and they have this revelation that, you know, this is a creature that stored its uh, visual memories not in its brain but in its actual eyes and therefore we can we can... very interesting concept that that its brain is in its eye yeah i mean although i do think that's kind of slightly a plot hole in the sense that the, the eye that i the... don't think it's a plot hole i, I think it's more in the, the characters misunderstanding what they're dealing with at this point possibly they're not necessarily right yeah that's true it's just that for me the eye that they're dis- dissecting is the eye of the um, missing link creature and we know that humans don't keep their visual memories in their eyes and neither did you know neither did like Neanderthal man or previous man so so therefore this quality of, of storing images there is, is something that's somehow been brought to it by the creature it was playing host to yes um, and mm. I don't think it's really within the film's uh, remit to kind of explain exactly how that happened I, I guess it's fair enough to say that it just happened. But it's a nice image, though, when they're looking under the microscope at the eye and they see... They see the, the earth. earth it? And that music goes, Woo! <laughs> oh, yeah, again, again, the music helping to tell the story as it's going along. The music's brilliant. The music is really kind of eerie. Oh, You guys are making me want to watch this film again. <laughs> oh, um, you know what? I think, I think we should do a commentary of this film. Yeah. <laughs> We we practically yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so oh well, you can sit this along with your copy then. <laughs> Excellent. So Tim, um, have we any other major plot development or, or major scene to mention before the arrival in the film <laughs> of the third uh, poster title star? Yeah, we got a lot yet. Um, oh right, okay. I just want to I just want to quickly go on about. Well, yeah, there's quite a few things happened before that. Um, so yeah. The very important thing about the images is what they are. Okay, so the first thing they see is Mirov. It's the last thing the creature saw before it died. Um, and then they see um, prehistoric creatures, you know, like dinosaurs. And then they see the Earth from space, which is also very interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Setting up things, for, for again, for a bit later on. 
Yeah, it, again, it just it drops information that that kind of becomes crucial, and that and what I love is that the film is base is building up this mosaic of information about the monster and about the background, um, which yeah. is the audience can put together without being too sledgehammer about yeah, it. Yeah. It's all very very subtle. It's great writing. Um, it is brilliant. And you you said earlier you said earlier there was exposition, but. It's necessary because it doesn't it doesn't slap it in your face. It said it subtly builds it, and you and you sort of work it out yourself as you go along. So next, Prajelov turns up. Um, he's he as you said he's very excited, but he keeps playing on this thing that that it's there's something to do with the devil or Satan, and that the eye itself is the eye of Satan, and and you've got this um, conflict between religion and science. You know, Saxton saying that's total nonsense. There's a scientific explanation, and he's like, okay, what is it then? And he's like, well, I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> anyway, um, there's there's a big blackout because the train goes through the tunnel. Priscilov steals the eye and runs off with it, and then they go off looking for him. And then there's the point where Miss Miss Jones finds him. Well, sorry, doesn't doesn't find him, but she finds um, Mirov in in the uh, in the baggage compartment, and uh, then yeah, something happens. So what what happens to him? Let's go, let's go uh, there and do okay, it. Okay, so Mirov reveals that he's got a hairy hand for some funny reason, and then red eyes, and it's obviously clear at this point that whatever was that whatever was whatever whatever was part of the creature is now part of him. And yeah, she ends up dying the same way as everybody else has so far. So Miss Jones is, is no long is no, no more, which is very Jones. sad. Because goodbye, Miss like Jones. Thank yeah, God, Miss Jones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a shame. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's great. Again, all the um, the things pulling together, and obviously we now know that our villain, in, at least in this portion of the film, essentially our villain is Mirov, and um, and. The combination of um, Julio Pena and the voice <laughs> of Roger Delgado creates a, a really menacing character. And we have, I think we now have the um, a number of scenes where we, the audience, know that Mirov is the creature, but um, the other characters don't. All right, so after this, um, Pujanov comes out with the eye that he's stolen. Um, Mirov destroys it in the fire. At this point, he says, are you going to kill me? He's like, no, there's nothing in your head of any use. <laughs> and then everybody is now panicking because, you know, all these things are happening and they want to get it off. And Mirov with his soldiers, because obviously he's a powerful man, you know, he's, he's got his soldiers and everything. And he takes charge. He basically says, no one's getting off this train. And if, you, if anyone tries to stop it, I'll shoot him. At this point, they're now trying to, uh, Dr. Wells and, and uh, Alexander Sexton are trying to work out what the hell is going on. <laughs> and they've got no idea. But then Saxon himself, uh, instructs the conductor to basically stop the train at the next station because obviously things are getting out of hand. Uh, Mirov goes into the uh, conductor's office, um, takes out the note that he's typing, you know, uh, screws it up, and then kills him. So what is the element that leads um, uh, Saxon and Wells to conclude that the creature is, has transferred to someone? Okay, so the, at first they think that... that because obviously they're assuming the creature's dead. They don't know that some that that whatever's in the creature is inside somebody else, and so um, they're now speculating maybe it's left some sort of disease which is killing everybody. Um, and then somebody says, "Well, hang on, why do their eyes go white?" So at this point, this is where you see all these lovely shots of eyes with with the magnifying glass. Oh yeah, where they're where they're examining everybody's eyes to see if there's anything they can spot. And then at this point, uh, Saxon says, "Look, I think we suggest we just 
everyone stays together in groups or in pairs. If anything does happen, somebody can raise the alarm. So it's the, so everyone's now getting into sort of survival mode at this point. And then this is when Saxton finds um, the, 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 the conductor's missing and the window's open because his body's been chucked out the window. Um, and he finds this bit of screwed up paper on the floor that was meant to be, you know, stopping the train at the next station. So I think it's off screen, but Saxton sends out a message to the nearest station uh, to to stop it there. And, that, and that's the Cossack station. Right. With, with, with you know, our, our third build friend. <laughs> so, yes. Um, uh, and, 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 and his soldiers. Uh, and they get the message and they will come on board. Because in, that in was bit. my other other question of a possible plot hole is I don't remember... Uh, how the Cossack station was actually alerted that they need to stop and board the train. You see them receiving a message, but I don't know who it was yeah. from. So, Tim, are you saying that you think it was from Saxton? It was sent from Saxton because they have they have a uh, you know telegraph whatever it is on the uh, on the train because that was what that's what the conductor was typing out before he was killed. He was typing out the message to then relay it by code because obviously it must be some sort of code like Morse code or something that they use to to relay the message. Um, so, um, so basically, we think that Saxton just went into the conductor's room after the conductor was killed and just used the equipment to finish sending the message. And he did it, yeah, yeah. Sorry, before that, when uh, Mirov gets rid of the conductor's body, Pushalov comes in and says, you know, who are you? Because he obviously realised at this point, it's not the devil, this must be something else. And he's, he is now showing his true intention of being excited about this. So at this point, Mirov walks off and he says, I want to help you. So it's clear at this point that um, Pujarov is turning to the dark side. To coin a phrase. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, we now go to um, uh, yeah the the station the, yeah, the station so where the basically this is this is the 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 big entrance <laughs> of Telesavalas. And um, so yeah, we see at the Cossack station somewhere along the the line there is a. A small Cossack military unit manning a station. They receive the coded message, and one of them turns around and says, Captain Kazan, <laughs> this is important. And we basically see the camera pans over to like a corner of the room where there is a figure in it's not a bed quite, it's um, some kind of stall. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think you see two pairs of legs, don't you? He's basically with somebody. He's with someone. Yeah, yes, and they just—they obviously disturb something, and and he looms into a massive close-up. His face is revealed. And he's like, "Oh my god!" It is Telly Savalas, and within one second, he has just taken over the entire film. I, can't, yeah. I don't know what the line is that he says, <laughs> but it almost doesn't matter. Oh, I remember. I remember. So basically, the message comes through, and the guy receiving the message says, uh, "The train will be here in exactly fourteen minutes," and then you just hear this voice. Fourteen minutes. Yes, Your Honor. That's what it says here. Doesn't say it in words, Your Honor, but in code. I know about telegraphs, little papa. I know about trains. I know about electrical currents. Even though I still believe in God, I don't like to be made a fool of. What struck me the most about him is that he just looks like he's in his dressing gown, which I think is maybe the point. And when the train arrives... post Coital. Yes, well, he's, so. ju- he's just in his army coat, isn't he? Yeah. But even by the time yeah, the train literally. Arrived, he's not put a shirt on. Yeah. He never <laughs> bothered. Uh, I just, for the first time I saw this film, when I was very young, I thought, that's Kojak. What the yeah. hell is... I probably hadn't seen him in anything else by then. What's Kojak doing in this, in this film? It's just 
bizarre, but kind of, you know, I, I, you, you accept things when you're that age. So just... I'm convinced that this was, this was his, um, his audition piece for Kojak, because this came before it. Yeah. yeah. I just think this, uh, hey, Teddy's father was under contract to the producers, and they said, well, get him... Yeah, because he... Getting something else to do. Getting, he, he is the star of Pancho Villa. Yeah. And he obviously, maybe, he, he probably just had a couple of days left on yeah. his contract. You know, Roger Corman, the producer, would um, often do this thing, like, I think he famously said, I've got four days with Boris Karloff left, what can we do? And ended up getting appearances in at least two movies out of Karloff <laughs> for that. So, yeah, we have Telly Savalas in, the, in these two scenes in this extraordinary role. I mean, um, even though this is before Kojak, he was a big name. He'd been in the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, he'd been a Bond, Bond villain. Yeah. So he, he was quite a, a yeah. big... And he did do a lot of films in Europe at that time. I know he's in a film called The Time to Live and A Time to Die or something, which is a western with James Coburn. He's in that extraordinary, bizarre film called Lisa and the Devil. Oh, I've never heard um, of that. Oh, well, it's just... Uh, Mario Bava, I think he directed oh, it. Oh, OK. It, that sort of, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, so it's an well, Italian in, horror movie. It's an Italian horror film, which is set in this house. With so yeah, he, he, he had been working in Europe at that time a lot, just before Kojak happened when he became like a, a huge international kind of um, celebrity, I suppose, making records and things like that. Right. So it's just, uh, it's just bizarre to see him with his American accent uh, in this... Yeah, and again, no, he's turning up the end. He, d- he doesn't attempt to, to moderate his American accent. I have to say, I've never seen Kojak. Is this the kind of presence he has in Kojak? I've never seen co- it much. Because, you know, I'm a Colombo person, so I've seen a few episodes. Yeah, it's that same same sort of performing. Yeah, that same kind of voice. And... The, the, the way Kazan kind of bounds into rooms and just yeah, takes over the situation. Kind of forceful. But also, even though he's a Cossack, they're setting up the fact that he's going to go on the train and in his own special way in his own special ruthless way, investigate what's going on. Right. Yeah, ruthless. Yeah, is, yeah absolutely. And it sets us up with this very interesting spill that he gives to this um, you know, telegraph operator um, of how... Well, he, he does it in a very superfluous way, but he basically he's explaining that he can spot a liar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene in Pancho Villa where Telling Savalas' character as basically as a revolutionary has kind of taken over this Mexican town and he just personally interviews everybody in the town. Like, who are you? Uh, who's your parents? What do you do for a living? Let me see your hands. Are they dirty hands? And if he doesn't believe what they tell him, he just shoots them. <laughs> that's, his, that's his way of um, just, like, establishing authority in this town. So it kind of feels a bit like that, really. Next scene is... Um, I forgot his name again, but, you know, it's the, it's the guy who keeps saying, I'm not a scientist, I'm an engineer. But I try to keep up with things, you know. And uh, Mirov comes in, uh, obviously, you know, different. <laughs> and obviously this guy is with, with, paired up with this, this American lady. She's asleep and he's playing chess by himself. This, like, little chess set thing. And Mirov is basically saying, okay, how do you measure, how do you measure gravity? Um, can gravity be overcome? And he's like, well... I have heard about these ideas that you can have these things called rockets that can that can get you into space, that can fly free of the Earth's gravity. And I know somebody who's been speculating about this. And he's like, well, do you know him? And he's like, well, he was like a father to me, actually. You know. Huh. <laughs> and at, right. that point, at that point, Mirov kills him because he obviously needs this information out of him. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I, I, again, I, significant I, plot point. Quite shocked when Yevtushenko dies. I didn't think he, he would. Yeah, he's. I thought he's a nice bloke. And he's probably going to make it to the end. He's a really he's engaging a, character, yeah. actually. And Kale's a Unfortunately, kind of as well. 
he dies because he knew a little bit too much. He had information that he wanted. So now we go to the to the bit where you've got Mirov walking along the corridor. You can still see his hairy hand. But a lot of the time he just keeps it in his pocket so people can't see it. You know, right. he, but, he's, but he's got it because you know, he's by himself. He's got it, you know, all um, out and everything. And he goes in to see um, Alexander Satsun, who's working, you know, by lamplight, trying to work out what's going on. He's looking at all the all the prints from stuff they've seen, um, you know, from the microscope. Um, looking at the creature's eye and this is where Saxton then explains his theory of what he thinks actually is actually happening and he says basically here's a picture from the uh, from the creature's eye of the earth what it might look like from space because we haven't actually seen what the earth looks like from space at this point you know in time this might be the first time that anyone's actually seen it in in this you know sort of in this world yeah really nicely done yeah so so he speculates that the creature was inhabited by something from another planet that needed to survive by going in you know by basically taking over the body and brain of earth creatures including this creature that he, this, this fossilized creature that he found but then when it was shot it had to transfer itself into somebody else so he concludes by saying it's now must be alive in somebody on this train at this point Mirov says you're a very good detective you've discovered everything except who is now the host but that's our next step. Thought this might come in handy. Oh, good idea. Wells comes at this point with a double barrel shotgun and says, this might come in handy. <laughs> oh, I, I love that moment of Cushing just walking into the room with a massive shotgun. <laughs> it just looks wonderful. He, they should retitle the film Wells with a shotgun. <laughs> Well, we could do that. We could we could release our boot as we do own the film. We could release our boot like retitled version of it. Wells with a shotgun, just uh, Wells in the front with a shotgun. Yeah, and, and so like um oh so at this point Mirov goes oh so two of you together that's great as if you know they're not a challenge really are they? And he says but what if one of you are the monster? And Wells says monster, we're pretty sure. <laughs> and that is the best line of the film, the classic line. Yeah. It is. It's absolutely great. It's a lovely, lovely moment. And it's a lovely moment for Cushing as well. And, and I love that it comes in this this international movie. That that line was not written by British writers. No. They're the only two English characters in the movie, I think. And it's just perfect in, in its context. And it's such a funny line. Okay, so um, Saxon and Wells finds the body. Because um, the American woman's obviously uh, woken up and and um, raised the alarm. She's being comforted by by Irina Petrosky, and she mentions the fact that when she woke up, the lights were off, not on. Because when these people 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 are being killed, Mirov is making sure that he turns the lights off. So they, this is obviously quite significant. And Saxton turns to Wells and says, well, "When we did the test, when we tested everybody's eyes, the lights were on." Yeah. Yes, this is the point where we kind of think, ah, the creature's glowing eyes were all those things were in the dark. So can you only see the glowing eyes in the dark? It does kind of it, indicate yeah. to me it, it's maybe the logic of it that his eyes are always glowing, but you just can't tell if the lights <laughs> are on. Which I think maybe is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just a natural reaction he has whenever the lights go down. But either way, it's a good it's a good twist moment. Um, and then, well, basically, Mirov is being followed still by Brigitte, who just won't go away. <laughs> you know, and at this point, he's now calling him Master, so oh, he's yeah. obviously really devoted to him. And he follows him into um, 
the uh, Count's um, quarters where he picks up the steel and he starts asking questions about this, you know, what happens to it at high, high temperatures? So he's already getting onto this idea of building a rocket, you know, so he can get into space, obviously. It's another logical plot development that comes out of the character. This creature we now know is like a stranded alien. It's fairly natural for it to want to get back well, to where it thing, came the, from. The creature is almost kind of sympathetic, or at least you could understand. All he wants to do is leave the planet and go back to his own planet. Um, now he has to kill people in order to do that. It is sort of based on the thing and the original. I know we haven't we've gone to. It's based on the original story that the thing's based on, but it's it's also ET at the same time. Yeah. Well, in order to survive, he has to absorb this knowledge, and when he absorbs the knowledge, people die. Yeah. But that's just. It's not yeah. like he's yeah. killing them just because he's evil. He's killing them because he wants their knowledge. So in a sense, he's yeah. not, not. You can almost kind of sympathise to the extent. Well, he is an alien trapped on this planet, just wants to leave, and he's got a different morality. He's just. Yeah. To to uh, to him, human beings are just like, and, and my mice are to to us. They're just sort of like you just kill them in order to get what you want. You know, like. the layers of logic to that. That's what makes this a science fiction horror film, not just a horror film. Yeah. Well, I I say when I talked earlier about a a genre switch from western to horror. Yeah. In a way, this film kind of subtly switches genre. It's not like From Dust to Dawn, which starts as a road movie and then turns into a vampire film by the end. And yeah. if you haven't yeah. seen the film, I apologise. Oh, but well, also, yes. this film starts as a horror, you know? Yeah. And, it's, and it almost sets itself up as a supernatural horror taking place on a train. And then as we learn more and more and more, it goes from being a supernatural horror to being a science fiction because we have a scientific explanation for what's going on. And yeah, there's a horror element to it, but it get, becomes more science fiction the more we learn. With one plot exception, which I'll say when it happens, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is my only... It's not really a criticism, but it's more of an observation that the film becomes less frightening as it becomes more science fictional. Unlike, say, mm. Nigel Neal stuff, which somehow becomes more frightening as the supernatural things are explained to have a rational origin. They always become more chilling. Um, whereas this film kind of, like you say, Tim, it kind of starts off as a horror movie, but towards the end it's more kind of a sci-fi action movie. But still, because the characters are so well-drawn and it's so um, finely made, it's it's really involving. I think it's still scary. I still I, There's a scene coming up I won't mention yet, which I think is really, really scary towards the end. I, well, uh, yes, yes, I, uh, I think uh, I know what you mean. Great moment. There's a very important point here, um, that between Pujanov and... Um, Saxton, there is this constant battle of religion versus science, this, this constant debate they're having. And when Puzalov learns that it's nothing supernatural and nothing to do with his faith whatsoever, he basically loses his faith and abandons it altogether. So at the same time, at the same time, it becomes a more of a science fiction film for the character of Puzalov. He's no longer debating uh, religion versus science. He's accepting the fact that this, this is something very powerful that has nothing to do with religion, and he's going to follow it now because this is now what he believes in. And there's a psychological complexity to that as well, which is, a, is another layer to the film. That, that's really nice. I think Pujadov, to me, is the most interesting character in this film. I know it's a Peter Cushing Christopher Lee film, but I think Pujadov, Alberto de Mendoza, that's his <laughs> name, isn't it? Yes. That character, I mean, even the first time I watched it, that he is the one. I don't know whether I knew who Rasputin was then, I know he is now. Uh, somebody who is religious, supposed to be religious, he's a monk, and yet he wants to embrace evil. He's working for the Count who he despises. I presume he's in love with the Countess. I think he says he loves the Countess, doesn't he, or something? 
Mm. So it's, you know, so he's very Rick Rasputin-like. He's full of earthly kind of desires and everything. It's a shame how he carried it on. Yeah. <laughs> this movie actually does have a line that Mad Monk was carrying on. As yeah. in the Boney M song, <laughs> Ra Ra Rasputin, it was a shame how he carried on. That's another link that, that I didn't quite realise. He was my favourite character when I was a kid, and he's still my favourite character now, because as you said, out of everybody, he is the most interesting out of all of them. And you just, well, well, and because of what ends up happening to him as well, it becomes the sort of big climax of the movie as well. So it's, it, he is a, such an important character from, from those, those points of view. And I yeah. think we should say that um, um, the guy who plays him, Alberto de Mendoza, I Mendoza think yeah. he, he is superb. He, he is brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. He, yes. And it's, it's a lovely uh, vocal performance by Rietti as well. Mm. And it's nice that he's kind of got, he's got a lead character to play, which is yeah. not often the case. But I think it's the, it's the visual, um, it's it's Mendoza's eyes and, and and everything that really sells the mania of this character. Yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating character. You don't quite know where he's coming from and what he's he's. Sort of, yeah, no, he's great. It's a great performance. Yeah, I know. I just I just um, I like him. I like Pajardov. Pajardov. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name as well. Yeah. So what happens next in the story? The train comes to a halt. Just before Mirov is, is obviously about to kill the Count. Uh, what's his name? It's Mariam. Mariam Petrovsky is his name. Uh, the train comes to halt. It's pulled up at the station where the Cossacks are, led by our, our friend Kojak. <laughs> and they all board. Uh, and they all board. And there's this sort of you know military-type music playing as they're bored, saying, Ah, hi, here comes the cavalry. And then the train pulls off again, and everybody is all everybody on the train is all sort of shoved into uh, one carriage, um, sort of lined up against the wall, basically, to try and find out who was doing all the killings. Yes, I mean, I think a kind of a strange decision that they board the train and then let it set <laughs> off again. Surely <laughs> well, um, you wouldn't do that, but, you know, it, but it, again, it continues the claustrophobia and the drama. This scene, basically a character comes from outside the film, steps in the film, tries to take it over, and, and then he's ejected it from the film. And and Savalas does kind of take the film over for a second, yeah. but um, it, it is quickly repelled, and it's, it's quite powerful the way that goes down, actually, in the sense that uh, Captain Kazan saunters, um, not saunters, but kind of swaggers into the film like an unstoppable character. He's absolutely convinced of his own superiority and power. He's also ruthless and incredibly brutal. Absolutely. He's almost kind of too brutal for the film. It's like he's coming from another film. It's a different... I mean, I know it's quite a violent... It's, you know, it's quite a disturbing film in many ways and shocking, but it's a different kind of brutality that he represents. But then, of course, he's he's met with the full force of whatever the alien is and can do. I suppose it's making the point that human beings can be just as ruthless mm. uh, as the alien can. You know, we've yeah. got our own monsters on this mm. planet. So I think Tally Savalas' subtle, understated performance gets that over. Really well. <laughs> do you remember um, Dr. Terror's Vault of Horror? The BBC series... Where they where, where Doctor Terror would introduce horror films. The Guy Henry ah, show. Yes, yes, we, we talked Dr. about that. Yeah, yeah. So Doctor Terror's Vault of Horror did Horror Express. They so he had Doctor Terror introducing Horror Express, and I and I actually had this as my video copy for years. And one thing I remember about his introduction 
was he said that um, Tony Savalas plays a very unlikely Cossack. Right. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. He also plays a very unlikely Mexico in Pancho Villa. Um, but I, don't, I quite like... I like his performance. I know it's over the top, I know I kind of make fun of it, but I think it works. No, it works. Because he's supposed entirely. to be this hugely egotistical, sort of swaggering character who just thinks he can do anything, and then he gets his comeuppance. Yeah, I think it's, and very powerfully. Who, who are the fathers? He's also funny at the same time, because it's a brilliant line when um, the Count and Countess are also shoved in with all the peasants, as he, as um, Captain Kazan calls them. And he says, uh, you know, this is Irene Petrosky, and I am Count Marian Petrosky. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Please escort them to their car. But just before that bit, she comes in and says, uh, I'll have you sent Siberia for this. And he goes, I am in Siberia. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, so basically, um, Kazan uh, attempts to create order in the in the cabin and find the the person responsible, and this causes the um, uh, the creature to to kind of reveal itself and attack his men, and 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 um, we go into a quite bravura kind of fast cut. That's a brilliant scene. Mayhem in killed. darkness, yeah. where, where all yeah. the soldiers are trying to find him and kill yeah. him, and he's just. And and you just see the red eyes in the dark, and and each soldier, when locking as soon as it locks eyes with them, the soldier is killed, and, and it just kind of wipes its way through the men. Now let's talk about the dubbing again, because all of the screams are stock screams. All right, okay. And I've heard those screams in other films. Right, okay. That didn't strike me. No, actually. I didn't notice that. I right. didn't know that. So. But it's also the first time the victims actually scream, because before you, you never you never heard it, but. It obviously we we've already discussed. It's obviously very painful being killed that way, and this is the first time we actually hear it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the stylization of most of the earlier deaths, I think, doesn't it tend to be? You kind of see the person looking like they're screaming, yeah. but what you yeah. hear is the sound of the train, the scream of the train wheels, or the music just playing over the top of it. You know. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting reversal as well. That you know, the, almost possibly the most typical kind of trope of, of horror films as a genre is to hear the, the, yeah. the scream of young women. Um, and the only people who scream in this horror film are the soldiers, oh, yes. the male soldiers. You do notice that Captain Kazan, he knows what's going on straight away. And he's pushing all his soldiers to the back, basically saying, don't look at the eyes, don't look at them. Because a little bit earlier, you know, when um, he's trying to find out who it is, and Saxton turns down the lights and suddenly it reveals that it's Mirov. And Mirov, you know, um, gets a knife in his back and is, sh- you know, shot quite a few times. Um, we've actually missed this bit, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, and then he goes off, and Kazan's about to go after him, but Saxton says, "Don't know. You saw his eyes. If you look at them once, you're dead." So yeah, at this point, Kazan is trying to save his soldiers by saying, "Don't look at them. Don't look at them," and pushing them all out of the way. But I said before this scene, we we miss out that there's a transition between Mirov. And Prusadov, and this is where Prusadov becomes, you know, the the creature himself, which is a very very creepy moment. It's one of my favourite moments of the film because you've got the music and the way he's swaying and everything, and the way the transition happens. It's just so atmospheric. Because Mirov is shot, isn't he, and staggers isn't out, he stabbed? shot and stabbed. Yeah. Savalas throws a knife. I oh yeah. Goes like that with a knife. And he staggers his way out of the carriage, and Prusadov follows him. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The swaying is really creepy. 
Yeah. Swaying, it's just one of those extra little things that just add to it. Yeah. Really, yeah. When they start swaying, when they die. And then it sort of, then he sort of sees very, very sort of, um, rapid shots of just Pujaro's face in a sort of, almost like a kaleidoscope type, type effect. And it's very trippy. <laughs> it's brilliantly done. And then they both collapse and then Pujaro gets up and it is that big reveal that Pujadov is now the creature. And while all the mayhem has been going on with Pujadov versus the soldiers, uh, Saxton and Wells have led all the passengers to run uh, to the back of the train and get into the, the baggage van, which is, I think at this point, it's the only uh, place on the train where there is light, is it? Because um, at one point that we've not mentioned, uh, the creature has... Um, uh, smashed the generator or something i can't remember exactly he cuts the power with an axe and it just turns all the power off apart from at the back where it's all lit by candles yes that's right and um you see an exterior shot of i presume the model train and you see the lights kind of cut out again really nice visual but also it's it's a threat isn't it because everybody knows at this point and it's the big reveal that the only way he can kill is in the dark so when he shuts the lights off everybody is now in trouble Yes, and it's, again, it's that wonderful thing. It's a bit like the approach John Carpenter took in Halloween, which is that recognise that darkness is something that is kind of integral to the genre of horror films, but how can you use it most powerfully? And that sparingly, have most of your film in the light, and if you can make that tense yeah. and, uh, and, and stuff, then once you, the light goes away, it's so much more powerful. That's great. So, and then we have the the moment when all the soldiers are, are dead, except for Captain Gazan is the only survivor, and we have a last kind of confrontation. Now, I did want to say this, but it's not said explicitly, but it's suggested that the more he kills, not just the more knowledge he gets, but the more powerful he gets. And at this point, Kazan hasn't even got to look in his eyes to be affected by it. You can hear the you can hear the, the buzzing and you can hear the music and everything, and it's suggesting that this entity is so is so powerful now that he's just he's just killing him without without even having to look at him. That's true. I hadn't thought of that, and that maybe connects onto one of my questions about what happens next. Um, so by this point, the the passengers and Saxon and Wells are all in the goods van. Um, no. Um, it, it, they've sent everybody. They, they've sent everybody back, but they go to their own compartment um, to pick up the shotgun and and also um, a lantern. Uh, Saxon's given the lantern and the um, and the shotgun. They discover the bodies of Kazan and all his soldiers, and that's when Wells agrees to go to the back of the train while uh, Saxon carries on because he goes on to the to the count and counts countess's compartment because he knows they're still there that's also where prashadov goes uh and he ends up killing um the count in front of the countess but it's not because he wants to get knowledge it's because he has the knowledge of of prashadov and he's almost taken revenge on on behalf of prashadov yeah again there's a change hmm. now he's killing prashadov is killing the count because he doesn't like the count rather yeah. than to, to yeah. just absorb his knowledge so again, there's another. Well, it's, it's almost as if the creature has absorbed not just Pajardov's knowledge, but also his madness. Yes. Well, yeah. but it's well, it's different now, isn't it? Because it's the creature is in Pajardov's body. Yes. It's not just taken his his memories and his knowledge. It's maybe more subject to his impulses yes. than it was with the other characters. Well, they didn't do that with Mirov. 
Yeah, but Mirov wasn't a mad monk. I know, on. but Mirov was going around killing people. But I'm sure the real Mirov no. would go around killing people. So he's... Nobody... But I think, it, I think it is clear that the creature does absorb the person's personality as well as their knowledge. Because, you know, Mirov is still acting like Mirov, even though he's the creature at the same time. And it's the same, and it's the same with, with Bruzhanov. And it, she, tries, she tries to kill Bruzhanov after killing the Count. And he says, "If you want to, if you want to kill him, you're too late, you know." But, but then he reveals he actually loved you more than he loved the promise of heaven. So he starts revealing what he knows about Brzezhov at the same time. Again, yeah. it's just really nicely done, and I, I, I think it could be said that um, the good uh, impulses within Mirov were just maybe not as strong as the yeah, crazy impulses so, yeah. within. Yeah, he's got a tough guy, so Brzezhov, so. So great, we're rattling on to to uh, our gripping climax. We're almost there. So Saxton turns up with um, just just the right moment because it's obvious that Brzezhov is about to kill, you know, Irina Petrovsky, and he turns up with with the with the the lamp and the uh, and the shotgun, and with the lamp shining in in his eyes, he can't you know he can't do anything. Um, so he says, you know, "Get over there," and then you know. Um, Irina's out of the way now. She's protected. And he basically says, right, now explain yourself. Who are you? And then we start learning actually who this entity is or what this entity is. Um, is this the point where we see a power of the, the creature has that we've not seen before? Yeah, yeah. After he's explained you know, um, what he is. So he basically says he's a form of energy occupying this host and he came with others, you know, mil- billions and billions of years ago, um, but he was left behind, like a bit, bit like E.T. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, but he also explains that the, the history of the planet is part of him. So if he if he's killed, everything he knows about planet's history will be gone, just like that. So he's basically he's trying to bargain with him, basically, to to try and stop him from killing him. But the, that bargain doesn't work, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Literally, Saxon's about about to pull the trigger, and then he goes, "Wait, there's something else," and that's when we we see this this extra power. This is uh, wonderful. What happens now? Um, yeah. uh, the the monk um, or or the entity, whatever, is able to essentially resurrect the dead Cossacks as zombies and send them yeah. as its foot soldiers against Saxton and the others. I think it's amazing. I think it's the sequence that you were hinting yeah, at. Yeah, I was thinking when you said it, it gets less scary. I think this sequence is... And you're almost at the end of the film. So, so you kind of think, well, we're coming to the end now. It's going to be... And then suddenly there's this yeah. complete unexpected scene where the dead come back to life, which well, I think is <laughs> terrifying and no, really I, well done. I agree that it's a really scary sequence. The, uh, my criticism of it is connected to the fact that I don't think it really fits into my thesis that this is a horror movie that becomes a science fiction thriller because I don't think it's very science fictional the, unlike everything else I don't think the film gives us any reason to suspect that the creature can do that well yeah there's, I think it's more done for effect than it is you know there's not yeah in terms of plot there's not much re, you know reason explanation I mean, it's for it's classic it's just, horror it's, imagery yeah, and, yeah. and actually it's very I wonder um, are you both familiar with The Keep um, no, I've the, seen the it. novel by F. Paul Wilson I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Uh, well, it was it was it's a novel. It's a nineteen eighty one novel by F. Paul Wilson that was made into a film by by Michael Mann in nineteen eighty three. And in the novel, not the film, uh, the creature in 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 the keep in that movie 
uh, is basically like a kind of vampire-like spirit that kills um, all the Nazi soldiers who were stationed in this Carpathian castle. And towards the end of the story, it uses its powers to resurrect the, the dead Nazis and use them as its soldiers against the, the survivors who are trying to fight back. So I, I'd be really interested to find out if F. Ball Wilson had seen this film. Because it's like, it's exactly the same plot mechanism. I just assumed, um, yeah. watching it, keeping the spirit of the thing, that by this time the creature's so powerful it can put some of itself into these dead bodies. A little of the energy. It's a form of energy. Mm. So now the energy's so strong that it can just put a bit of energy into these dead soldiers and resurrect them. And all they, you know, they're doing anything. They're just walking along. So he, by this stage, he can, he can do that. He couldn't do it before because he hadn't absorbed enough energy, hadn't absorbed enough... I mean, that does make sense, and Tim, that, that chimes with what you were saying. Yes, but at the same time, um, he hints it just before he does it, because he says, I will teach you to end disease, pain, hunger. In other words, he said, yeah, I can, I can, I've got the neg negative effect of killing people or killing creatures, but I can also resurrect them at the same time, and I can teach you how to do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. Um, basically, the scene does tell us that there's a lot that we don't know about this creature. <laughs> the film is... It's a little bit like Steven Spielberg's statement that I don't care if the shark doesn't look great at the end of Jaws. If I've had you for the whole movie, you'll yeah. go with it at yeah. the end. Um, and I think it's it's a great climax to kind of throw on and, you know, and, and to come out of left field with. But also, because he's been revealed that he's just a form of energy, what's to say that he can't, you know, send little bits of energy of himself you know to to all the creatures that he's killed and to bring them back in life again you know there's there's zombified obviously because then the core of the in the the entity and the intelligence is still inside Prizadov, but there's, there's a part of him that's a bit of part of his energy that's going to the rest and that's res resurrecting them and he's then using his you know conscience wherever it is to control them all yeah no, I think you've convinced me. Again, it just adds to my desire to go back and watch this film again. Um, so the zombie soldiers drive Saxton towards the back of the train, I think, while Bajardov yeah, goes uh, to the front. Yeah, and he sort of he ends up fighting a few soldiers as he goes, and Irina's being, um, being attacked by them, so he's been the hero and protecting her at the same time. Yes. And and Pujadov obviously kills the men in the engine and yes. takes over control. We never we never saw the driver, did we? And the only time we see him is his body on the floor. Well, there was never a scene before in in the in the engine. No, so no. why would you why would you pay an don't, actor? Don't pay an actor. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we know how trains work. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So but but it, it's just nice how the action has moved to the two ends of the train. You know, it just yeah. kind of thematically, it, it it's quite it's quite lovely. But also, they got um, the rest. The, the remainder of the soldiers are walking through the train, so they're obviously now walking their way to the back, and everybody's stuck in the back. So you know, the stakes are high now. Yes, um, and at this point, I think it's Wells who comes up with the idea that you know we've just got to uncouple the carriage and let the the train go. It's their only way of escape. One bit that does confuse me is I, is what comes up next is there's a switching station which gets a message from Moscow to stop the train. Yes. By yes. by switching the track so it goes off a cliff. 
but I don't know how they got that message. <laughs> that bit I've never quite got yeah. my head around. Um, again, yeah, someone sent a, me- a distress call that we didn't see. So it's funny how they, they, these are, are the only kind of serious plot points in the plot problems in the film is like why do certain people go on the train or stop the train at certain points? But it's it's literally three things that happen yeah. though, so it's not a big thing. My theory is that it's a it's a coincidence that okay. Moscow decided the situation was so dangerous they might they have to just get get rid of the train, or it could be because they're aware that Cossacks have boarded the train. They've decided to try and stop the train that That's way. That's what I assumed because it was Kazan was on the train. Right. At the same at the same time, you've got Saxon and Wells uncoupling the train, but their their plan was just to basically uncouple it so they can you know just get away from it basically, and the two things come together mm. with the, with the final result. It's possible that little man that Teddy Savalas was talking to, the little father, whatever he calls him, he mm. sent a message to ah. this girl. Yeah. Say that a lot of Cossacks have gone on the train. Ah, yeah, that's, good. that's a good theory, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. If, the, if there's some way he knows that something happened to Or even more. just the train's just gone through a station and didn't stop. Yes. Sort of something. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it could be. Actually, I think they do mention that there, presumably there was, there's a nearby station because you would think that Teddy Savalas and his men would want to get off. <laughs> So yeah, um, yeah. maybe he said, we'll, we'll just get off the next station. And, and then he hears, the, the little man hears from the station, they didn't even stop. Yeah. But it's, it's a great moment when he gets the message saying, look, you know, um, Moscow says to stop the express when it goes to the switching point. In other words, it goes off the cliff. <laughs> and the guy says, well, delay it. That means killing everybody on the board. And he's like, well, maybe there's a war. Maybe it's war. Oh, that's it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's very happy to go out and uh, and switch the tracks. Yes. But so, so at this point, Saxon is now helping Wells uncouple the train. Um, and just as they're doing that, the tracks change, and then the train changes course, and Pajarov can see that he's heading towards a cliff, and panics and tries and tries to brake, but it's just, you know, the train is going so fast fast now, it's just it's not going to stop. And we get some the wonderful close-up shots of Mendoza. Doing the the face that a lot of villains in movies have done, which is oh no, I, there's no escape, no. And I think the music swells up, and we get a kind of quite spectacular train crash. Yeah, but it's it's a brilliant moment because just just before Pujadov screams before the train goes over the cliff, you see two very very quick cuts: one of the of the um, train uncoupling from from the from the back package, and then yeah, shot of the creature's face, and then he screams and boom over the cliff. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great moment. Um, and there's no twist. There's no the creature's dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There isn't some one of those yeah. terrible yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, train goes over the cliff, and and all the uh, carriages and the locomotive just explode. Yeah, because in order for there to be a twist, the film would have to play on some information that you yeah, didn't already have. Somebody you could transfer and to or something. Or... Because, because this is a science fiction film, it's logical and it doesn't do that. I mean, when I say that I think this is almost more of a science fiction film than a horror film, it's a great horror film. It's called Horror <laughs> Express. But you could do the same story with the same script but direct it and shoot it in such a manner that it wasn't scary yeah. and it would still yeah. be a good... Yeah. Yeah, compelling mystery story. Um, you know the logic holds. Apart from maybe the bit with the zombie soldiers, 
Um, no, it'd be difficult to not do that in horrific <laughs> ways, what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, you could do it. Yeah. You wouldn't have to just not have the bleeding eyes and everything. And yeah. That sort of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the idea that the creature just absorbs knowledge from people is such a brilliant idea. It's so clever. That's what I like about this film. It's so inventive. It's so imaginative. It's trying to do something different. It's not the same. I think British horror films have gone into a bit of a rut that they were using the same old creatures, same old kind of icons over and over again, the mummy and everything. You, you're right. You've got horror tropes of blood, death, zombies, all that sort of thing. But in this film, it's all introduced in a very inventive and clever way. Yes, absolutely. Um, and just beautifully controlled way, I think. You know, it's, a lot of films are inventive, but are a bit all over the place. Yeah. This is very, very focused. Yeah, this is, yeah. Um, and the way the plot develops is really... But it's also, it's both very focused and very fun, which are mm. two things which don't really go together very yeah. often, you know? I, I honestly can't praise it highly enough. With, 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 without, you know, without, without going on the pun side of things, it, it is a, quite a ride. <laughs> no, it is. It's, it is. It, I will say it's a cult film and not many people know about it. It always gets good reviews. Yeah, in all the film books, it gets good reviews. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I read reviews from people who watched it recently, and they say I've never seen this film. I just picked it up because it looked interesting, and wow, what a surprise this film was! Yeah, and God bless it. So, yeah. the, so the the train explodes, the creature <laughs> is killed, but the goods van is safe, and everybody in in there survives. We have a lovely last shot of the relieved-looking survivors, led by Saxton and the Countess yeah. next to him. Well, like the way. They're at the front, obviously, and they're literally... You have to imagine, they're literally on the edge of a cliff. Yes. Yeah, Um, yeah. Now, because there's an amazing moment where uh, the train goes off the cliff, but the uh, baggage carriage um, just gets to the edge and just stops right at the edge. And then you've got the dramatic music on the top saying, well, you know, they've just made it. Yeah, and uh, uh, that's a nice moment. And just to clarify, because we made it sound a bit like, or maybe I was imagining it, I was misremembering it, that because the lines, you know, the points change at the same time as them uncoupling the carriage, it almost makes it sound like Pajardo's part of the train goes one way and, mm-hmm. and the goods van goes the other, but it's not. They both yeah. go onto yeah. the doomed line to the cliff. And it's just yeah. that by sheer chance, the the just disconnected goods van slows down just enough to not go over yeah. the cliff and they're all just... Yeah. ..end up just looking over the cliff at the exploded train. Yeah. yeah. But then you got the the side of the car opens up with, and you have the rest of the passengers looking out, going, "Oh right, okay, <laughs> right." Um, and uh, and then we have the music coming up, and we're into our credits. say the first time I watched this it was the print of the film where for some reason they'd not translated the end credits even though they have translated the opening credits so it says it doesn't say the end it says Finn yeah and then the credits come up and it's and, and at the end of the credits it says Telly Savalas e Captain Kazan <laughs> just just a moment where the music comes in because you see it's like quick cuts of all the carriages on fire and you can hear the music slowly um just fading in at that point but my mother bless her soul misunderstood that for 
still being able to hear the creature whistling, even though it was dead. It wasn't, ah. it was just the music coming in, but she always was always convinced, oh, you can hear the creature still whistling at the end. And I thought, oh, if only they'd done that, that would have been a nice touch, actually. Oh, well, um, although maybe you could argue that the creature, after all, is a form of energy, and maybe it is released by the fire, and it's whistling <laughs> as it disperses, or it goes into something else, you know. Who knows? I think there's... There's lots to um, that you could extrapolate and follow up on, and I, th- you know, um, before we have final thoughts, because we have gone into the detail that this film richly deserves, <laughs> and probably um, I don't know if anybody else has ever discussed this movie in as much depth. I think we've spoken for a lot longer than the film itself lasts for. Yes, um, we have. <laughs> uh, but um, Tim, I think perhaps you have some ideas about. Um, uh, you have you have an idea that it's it would be worth continuing a story to follow this film. Yeah, because yeah. I, I don't think it ends there at all. That's where that part of the story ends, but I've got ideas of where it could continue. But I'm not going to go into too much detail at the moment because it is it is just ideas and nothing's really plotted out at the moment yeah, that's, that's concrete, but... Yeah, but I I understand why you wouldn't want to go into too much detail because I think you are planning to do something with those ideas, aren't you? That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, next month I'm going to sit down and actually write a plot synopsis for not a sequel but a follow up to to Horror Express, and then in November I'm going to use the month of November, which is the um, international novel writing challenge you know, month, month challenge thing where you have to write 50,000 words of a novel in a month which is quite a challenge sure. and I'm going to basically use that use that time to um, write as much of a first draft of a follow up novel to the film as much as I can Wow, that's brilliant <laughs> I've already got a working title for it, it's uh, Saxon and Wells Okay. Because it's gonna right. it's gonna focus on them as characters and continue their relationship and friendship as characters because they sort of you know were started arrivals and became friends by by this in- incident on the train and it continues from there but it also continues elements of the story that came before at the same time. That's great, and let us reassure our anxious listeners that. No lawyers will be knocking <laughs> on your doors, him, because once again we own this yes. film. But I don't intend to sell it. This is just something I, I want to do as, as um, basically a labour of love, really. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. But I, but I actually hope that somebody wants to buy it off you when you write it. Who knows? Well, we'll see. <laughs> Good stories are always worth something. It's it's just something I, w- I want to do because I haven't I haven't written anything substantial for a very long time, and so I thought, well, I want to get I want to get back into writing. But um, the best way f- for me to do it would be to um, just do something that I'm not going to sell. Just something, just to sort of get myself back into it. And I thought this would be per- perfect to do it. Sounds perfect to me. I wish you all the best with that, Zoe. It sounds like a wonderful uh, project. And I want to read it as well, so you better get to the end of it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, beyond November, I'll continue it anyway. But I'm just using that month of intense writing just just to get some of it written. Because I've been talking about doing it for a long time and nothing's happened. So I just want to you know, get on with it now. Yeah. No, good man, good man, you have all my encouragement and hopes there. That's great. All right, guys, we've been talking about Horror Express for a long time. It's been wonderful fun. Um, have we got any last thoughts we'd like to say before yeah. uh, we wrap up completely? Tim, go ahead. Isn't it a funky tune at the end? <laughs> 
It is, yeah. Um, basically, Kakavas reprises his theme from the main theme from the film, but brings in a bit of extra wah wah, doesn't he? <laughs> oh yeah, it's proper wah wah. Which is, um, uh, he he does the same thing at hmm. the end of the Satanic Rites of oh. Dracula, which I, I really liked. You just you know that the credits are about to come up in a Kakavas <laughs> film when you hear wow <laughs> start to come into the soundtrack. Um, yeah. I think he does something similar on Airport Seventy Seven as well. So probably um, Colombo. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely likes the wah wah. So he, he, on the Bond album that I had of, of his, he introduced a lot of extra wah wah <laughs> into a lot of the songs. So, um. The thing is, thing is right. You know, you, you hear all that. It, it, it's the most seventies sounding version of the theme tune at the end. But instead of seeing you know Shaft walk onto the screen, you think to yourself, no, it works because it goes with you know the the mood of the film. And so I just accept it. Yeah, no, because it's basically saying this is it. It's ended now. We're done. Yeah, ends the film on a warm note. Yeah, actually, I just think these people could have could have made just a bog standard horror film. Mm. Just they got Peter Cushing recently. They could have done whatever, but they they came up with something really clever and really interesting and really exciting and really, you know, they really went for it and made something, you know, sort of stretched the genre. Yeah, I think. And uh, oh, I agree. <clears throat> So go and see it. If you, gone, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. Yeah, so I, I think anybody who's, bit, who's got this far in the podcast yeah. without seeing it, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I know people who might listen to, yeah. listen to it all the way through and then go, I think that's an interesting film. I'll go on now and watch every one of those films I've just heard, or, or those scenes I've heard described in great detail. Um, but, you know, but I feel like watching it again, and yeah, I, I, like and I have again, seen yeah. it before, so, and, and very recently, so... Um, that's all I want to add, really. Just one more th- little thing I want to add at the end, just my, my final thoughts on, on the whole thing we've done today. Sure. Um, so as I said, I discovered the film when I was five. I sort of discovered it by accident. I remember my, my mother telling to me at the time, saying, you know this is a horror film, don't you? So I was always excited by the fact that it's the first horror film I ever ever, ever saw. And the reason why I'm so... why it has such a, such a special place in my heart is because it's the first horror film I saw, and it's... It will always be with me throughout my whole life, from childhood to now. There was a little period where my mum actually banned me from watching it because I was so obsessed with it, and she got a little bit worried that I was, you know, I was going to become a bit, bit, bit warped. So, so she stopped me from watch, watching it. But my brother made an audio copy by recording it off TV, but at the same time doing doing a narration over the top. And I can tell you, I listened to that audio copy every night when I went to bed. That was my story tape as a kid. Wow. Listen to Horror Express on audio. So on top of watching it hundreds of times, I listened to it hundreds of times as well. I know that film back to front and inside out. And then as an adult, 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 I can really sort of um, appreciate its, its merits from the way we've gone into it in great detail today. And, and all it's done is just enhance my love of the film. I will always love Horror Express until the day I die because because it's a great horror film. It's the first one I saw, and I'll never stop loving it. And you know what? The reason why I'll never stop loving it is because we're British, you know. <laughs> Bless you, sir. I couldn't say anything better myself, except I'll just say, uh, if there is any way you still have that recording that your brother made <laughs> with the narration... No. <laughs> oh, I oh, well, don't. It would go on YouTube. There's a guy on YouTube uh, who, who posts episodes of Columbo, which he narrates, so oh, that you can listen to them, you know. I will say this, though. I can remember some of the stuff he said on the narration. So, you know, I'm... 
you I'll could find a recreate way of, you know, it. Huh. And try and recreate bits of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, nice one. Um, I think that would be a, a, a historical document and a, and a, an important gateway drug for lots of young children to be fascinated by this um, this great horror movie. Um, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. Me too, sir. Thank you so much, Tim. Yes, thank you, Tim. You're an absolute gentleman. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Howard, oh, once well. again. Uh, I, I, I'm Dan and we're now returning you to the studio as such <laughs> for our other presenters to finish off the programme. Thank you so much, gents. Hello, folks. It's present day Dan again with present day Stella. Hi. Uh, we're back just to wrap up at the end and bring our usual round of recommendations for the week. I hope you enjoyed Howard and myself and Tim going on in basically exhaustive detail about Horror Express and I hope you think it was worth it. I think it was. Um, so at this point we usually give our recommendations for horror that's available to view. Um, Stella, I believe you've got a couple that you'd like to mention. I do, yeah. So the first one, which ties in neatly because it's also Spanish, um, it's on Netflix and it's called The Platform um, and it's a horror little bit of sci-fi in there as well um essentially prisoners in vertical cells and they can see down to each level and the food comes down from the top so the further down it goes the less there is so that causes the inevitable tensions um it's directed by and i'm going to try and say this so apologies for me butchering it yeah. by galda Gaz- gaztelu maybe that's, that's what i'm going to stick with anyway um, i don't know but, yeah it's called The Platform. It's on Netflix. I really, really enjoyed it. And I even got my husband to watch it, who categorically does not like horror. And he was well into it. So that worked well for us. Oh, brilliant. I have seen mm. the trailer on Netflix, which yeah. is, you know, like, um, I don't know if uh, all Netflix trailers are like this, but this was dubbed into English. So is the actual film dubbed or can you watch it with subtitles? You can choose. So on your when you've got your Netflix screen up and you've pressed play, if you look at the little play bar at the bottom on the right hand side in the little settings you can choose to have um english subtitles and and the actors speaking rightful spanish Um, because yeah i think we started watching it dubbed and after a few minutes we both said i can't handle this at all let's do the subtitles but i I really really enjoyed it and i would like to um, see what you think about it dan brilliant yeah i i've been intrigued by it i did um hear about it when it was i think it was on at fright fest in london last year and i heard some reports from that and it sounded interesting Mm. and then i saw the trailer on netflix so um yeah yeah i think uh i i I think that's maybe a quite apposite piece of lockdown viewing as we're all kind of trapped (laughs) waiting for food to arrive (laughs) (laughs) oh dear so yeah i'll um i should look forward to checking that out um did you have another one I did. The other one I had was um, Charlie Brooker's Dead Set, his uh, zombie-themed short series that was on Channel 4, is all available to stream on all four. So it's zombies um, eventually... Zombies eventually? Zombies taking over or getting involved with the Big Brother house. So that's very, very good. So again, similar sort of lockdown, trapped in the same place um, themes... So the premise was, you know, what happens when the zombie apocalypse happens? What happens to those in the Big Brother house? And the answer is not good things. But it's really, really good. And Davina McCall is in it and she plays herself. 
and she's really, really good. She really goes for it. She's fantastic. I have seen Dead Set. Uh, it is great. Um, it's directed by a guy called Jan Demange, who went on to make a, a movie called 71. Right, which I've is not a, seen that. a thriller set during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, oh, I'll write, I'll write that down. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's supposed to be great. I haven't seen it, but it is meant to be a very stylish piece of work. I think he was also in the frame for doing the next James Bond film. Oh, right. But I say next, I mean the one that we should have already seen, but which hasn't come out yet because of all the the lockdown business. Um, they were one of the first to cancel, weren't they? Yes, it's almost yeah. as if they knew something <laughs> other people yeah. did not. But hey, you know, they're, they're spies. So, um, <laughs> they should know things that we don't. They're, they're connected. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he was he was considered for that, I believe, but didn't get it. But um, but yeah, Death Set is a terrific piece of work. It's both. It It's kind of uh, something quite effective that occasionally happens, which is when you get comedy people, essentially, to turn their hands to horror. Yeah, um, yeah. Because Charlie Brooker had really only done comedy before then. Yeah. Um, and also it's got people like Kevin Eldon in it. Yeah, um, he's great in it. Yeah, and it, and it is, you know, it is a, a black co- comedy to some degree, um, but it, it's also terrifying and it kind of was so successful that I think it gave rise to Black Mirror, which... Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, it showed Char- that Ch- what Charlie Brooker was capable of doing. You know, it was more than just... Right in. Um, did you ever read Screen Wipe? No, Screen Wipe. Um, Screen Burn in Screen um, Burn. The Guardian. Yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah. That's where That's I great. first found him. So yeah, it's it's. If you've not seen Dead Set and you like zombies, do it. Yes, it works well as a zombie apocalypse drama. Um, you know, especially in the kind of post twenty eight days later kind of mode. You know that they're, they're um they're the modern running screaming zombies as I remember. Yes. Um, yeah, and it does well with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's really gripping, and it's essentially a movie. It's I think it's four half-hour episodes, isn't it? Something like that. Do you know what? I can't remember, and I did rewatch it not that long ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's not much of it at all. You can definitely smash through that in a weekend if you fancy. Yeah, yeah, that was great. No, I really recommend that. Um, my recommendation uh, is from the same year that I think Dead Set was made, which is two thousand and eight, I think. Um, mine is another horror TV show from that year, which is now available. I've just seen. Um, you can view it on Amazon Prime, and it's from the UK. It's called Apparitions, and it stars Martin Shaw as uh, an, he's either an exorcist or a former exorcist. Um, I can't remember. I did watch it at the time, and I just remember being bowled over by it. Um, it's mostly written and directed by Joe Ahern, who mm-hmm. um, he had, uh, at the time, he'd recently uh, been one of the main directors on Doctor Who. He later did a TV series, which I haven't seen, called The Secret of Crickley Hall, based on a James Herbert book. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, the main other claim to horror fame that he has for me is that in the late 90s, he did a TV miniseries called Ultraviolet, about a Vatican hit squad who hunt vampires. <laughs> uh, do you remember this, Stella? <laughs> yeah, it, I do. It rings a bell. I mean, he wasn't going to enjoy a Vatican hit squad, you know? <laughs> it was It was like a, a relatively low-budget... Yeah, I mean, I agree entirely. It was a low-budget Channel 4 kind of production, but yeah. it was just really well done. And the cast included um, Jack Davenport, 
Susanna Harker and none other than Idris Elba. It was one of his very (laughs) early kind of leading roles. And it's a a terrific piece of work. However, I'm not recommending that. I'm recommending Apparitions. (laughs) I do recommend Ultraviolet. I just don't know if it's possible to find it anywhere. But um, Apparitions is nearly as good. I remember it being really shocking. What channel made it in the first place then? BBC One. It was BBC One, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah. It's it's gruesome. It's very, very intense. Um, And actually, Martin Shaw, who I find a fairly dull leading man in general, he's kind of all over British television, um, he, he... gives a really good performance in it um and and i remember looking forward to it every week um in fact it's one i'm watching it again so yeah so that's yeah, my i might show. have a look at that as well yeah mm. really really good um so that's a, that's an interesting bunch that we've yeah uh, we've gathered for this week uh, i hope that the listeners have enjoyed the show once again um we're going to be back next week um both the two of us and also kirsty and our topic is going to be uh, the movies that really terrified us. Um, those films which really, really scared us. Um, hopefully yeah. that will be really interesting because we'll find out about the ways in which the different ways that we are frightened by things. Um, yeah, might turn into a bit of a therapy session, maybe. You have been <laughs> yes, possibly. To... Um, and now the podcast therapy for starts. us, hopefully, some yeah. interesting recommendations for the listeners. So, presented no, I look forward to that. Oh. Thank you very much, Stella. All right, thank you. All right, folks, so it's been a great guests. pleasure, as always. That's Tim it for this Shaw. week. And uh, we look forward to next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 And Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>